Cinemodities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects delve. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I'll be back in a couple of hours. Don't drink all the Coke. This week on Cinemodities, we are finally, finally finishing up our Chewed Up and Spit Out series. Now, there's a lot to say this week, but we have some things to get through first off. And of course, as everybody knows, once again, you were not hearing Zach carry out that intro. It is none other than someone who joined us at the start of this series. We have Justin once again. Justin, thanks for being here. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thanks for, you know, screwing with my brain and making me watch this nonsense Oh yeah, this is uh that we're that's going to be one of the the top items of this discussion is uh why I wanted you on this episode. But of course, we have to say, well, as usual, what is, what is Zach doing at the restaurant? Why is he not here? And this week is a little different because he's actually gone radio silent at the restaurant. Usually he informs us of what he's working on or uh what uh troubles he's trying to quell and things like that. Uh but this time I haven't heard from him in a while. This isn't really cause for alarm. This isn't the first time this has happened to me or to him. Uh, Sometimes, just like everybody else, this infinite void of the restaurant, we get lost in there. And we usually find our way out. Usually one of us finds John Ratzenberger, help us back into familiar territory. So nothing to worry about, uh, but nothing really to uh, expand on in that. So with that being said, I'm going to jump right into it. We are talking about to finish up the Chewed Up and Spit Out series... None other than David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. And I think just to get it out of the way, what do we want to just freestyle some No More Parties in L.A.? First song they played for me was about <laughs> their friend that just died, texting and driving down Mulholland Drive. <laughs> the problem ain't that I'm driving, the problem is that I'm texting. My psychiatrist got kids that I inspired. First song they played for me was about their friend that just died. I be thinking every day my holiday, I need to put up some goddamn barricades. I be paranoid every time. The pressure, the problem ain't I be driving. The problem is I be texting. My psychiatrist got kids that I inspired. First song they played for me was about their friend that just died. Texting and driving down my holiday drive. So when I, when I told Justin or invited him to be on this episode, I, uh, I definitely uh, heard back from immediately and said, oh, we're going to discuss no more parties in L.A.? And I was like, no, a movie, Mulholland Drive. And then I think uh, he listened to that song a few times and he finally got it through his head that there was a film unrelated to Kanye West. So on the, on the choice of this movie, when I was thinking about uh, the fifth film for the Chewed Up and Spit Out series, I definitely had other movies that were kind of akin to showgirls in their reality and their grounding. You know, um, uh, striptease I considered just because that's also considered a very poor movie. Um, uh, Secretary was on the list. Uh, L, the Paul Verhoeven movie, I was thinking about that. But I realized that this would be the perfect time to not only get another David Lynch film on Cinemodities, because we love him over here, but also the perfect opportunity after slowly letting Justin in on what we do on Cinemodities to really just push him into the deep end of not only what we think uh, it was the inspiration for this whole podcast, the idea of cinematic oddities, cinemodities, but also the movies that I really, really love. 
And so we're going to have to so talk about So your goal it. was to torture me. Um, in, in some way. I think that is a good way to put it because um, when I invited Justin on this episode and we got past the Kanye song, I knew <laughs> that I, I knew that I just had to keep quiet. I knew that when I told you about this, I just couldn't give anything away. I know I needed you to just go into it cold and watch it and see what you thought. And I and knew I had never seen a David Lynch film. Ah, Not yes. Once. That was going to be one of my other questions. So this was your first experience with David Lynch? Yeah, and you know I don't do a whole lot of research on this stuff. I like to just soak it in, go and experience it. All, the only thing I knew was that there had to be a tragic car accident scene, at least one. And I told Heather, I said, okay, if there is not a tragic car accident, <laughs> I'm going to be upset. And it starts the movie off, so there you go. Yep. So I, uh, I, that was going to be one of my questions. That's what I, I ex- ex- suspected, that this was going to be your first experience with a David Lynch film. Um, I know you've never seen Twin Peaks, his TV show. But I do have to mention that uh, of the handful, maybe what, the two or three songs that you told me you regularly skip on my 2018 Top 50 of the Year on Spotify, those ones that are really loud and, and, and raucous and, you know, of just full of cacophony. One of yeah. those is from David Lynch's band, Thought Gang. And, Wait, uh, this man's got a band too? Yes, he does music. He does a lot of stuff. And as we go through this movie, uh, Thought Gang, uh, the song in, in question is uh, Jack Paints It Red, which I'm sure oh, Justin... Oh, God. <laughs> okay, he remembers, <laughs> he remembers uh, just enough of it to, that he knows More to torture. It. And yes, that was one of my favorite songs of 2018. And uh, the the two members of Thought Gang, David Lynch, he directed this movie. The other guy is Angelo Badalamenti, who actually plays a role in this movie. So we'll have to point that out. But anyway, I knew, I suspected, and now have confirmed that this was going to be Justin's first experience with David Lynch. Like I mentioned earlier, I was kind of gradually increasing the kind of strangeness that Justin had to experience. Of course, we started on this podcast with Like Mike. Nothing crazy there. Then we had Under the Silver Lake, and then we were starting to get into some of that crazy territory. And then, like I said, I just wanted to push him into the deep end. And so I knew, when when I just decided not to tell you anything about this movie, I knew that whenever you watched it, I was going to just get a mass amount of text at a certain point. <laughs> in the last half hour of the movie, when everything goes fucking crazy. And I was absolutely right. That is exactly what happened. <laughs> <laughs> My phone was blowing up uh, two nights ago. I actually watched it two nights ago as well, so I was like a little ahead. Of, uh, I was a little behind you, but I knew exactly what was happening. And when you first texted me about the scene with the cowboy, I was like, okay, only like 45 minutes till Justin's just confused as hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so that's exactly what happened. I'm so glad I got that response because that's exactly what I'm looking for. But I wanted to ask you because I knew it was going to come at the end because everything kind of turns into the, the David Lynch sphere and atmosphere in that last 20 to 30 minutes of this movie. I did want you to talk about the experience with the film because I, I cannot imagine 
I, I cannot imagine you would be confused in any way for like the first hour, hour and a half of the movie. It, it, it is much. Is anybody? I mean, there's a few. There's questions. There's unanswered questions, but it. I would not call it confusion in any sense. Yeah, exactly. especially not compared to that last 30, 45 minutes. God knows how long it was because all time gets warped when you're watching some shit like that. So, so yes. Uh, so what if you could describe for us our ex- your experience watching this movie, kind of how you felt, you know, maybe in the beginning when what was your feelings when it started to happen? Were you doubting yourself? Did you think you missed something? Did you think you went through a time vortex? What are your, what are your thoughts? How did this movie feel to you? Okay, as you were strong watching? yes on a time vortex. <laughs> but before we get there, there have been a few things that are constant throughout these podcasts, right? And, you know, I'm a pro now. I've done two. Okay, first thing, I'm typically well, technically you know, having... three if you count the unreleased Chernobyl one. True. The unreleased Once Upon that. a Time in Hollywood that <laughs> turned into Chernobyl conversation. I'd call that practice. That, yes, that was practice. That cannot be released because it's 20 minutes of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then Justin yelling for two hours at me. Okay. The the three things that, that have been consistent are, one, I'm typically having a few beers when I'm watching the movie and sure. when we're recording. So, you know, I'm kind of not – I'm into it, but I'm also, you know, having a good time and not getting super serious with my analysis or anything. Two, I've not taken one note. I just go in and I, I play it off the top, you know, right yep. right from the dome. And three, I've actually liked the movies. <laughs> okay. Now, now one, I've, I'm sober right now. I haven't had any beers when I was watching this movie, but I felt drunker watching this movie that i've felt after any beers two i've got two pages of notes and text messages and screenshots i'm literally losing my mind and unfortunately i did not want to like this movie i wanted to just shit on you and tell you your opinions are horrible and this movie's terrible i don't know why you like it as usual but unfortunately Fortunately, I actually liked the movie. Oh, uh, okay, okay. I, I was about to say uh, R.E. Chernobyl. You just wanted to shit on my opinions. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, okay, okay. I, I think that that's an interesting thing you bring up. Um, the It's something that I think is a, a motif for all of David Lynch's movies. Maybe not all. Maybe there's a few with exception, like uh, The Straight Story and The Elephant Man, which are a little more grounded. It's it's something that, you know, almost transcends like or dislike. It's almost it goes into this realm of fascination or intrigue. Right. Yeah, so to, so to answer your question, the, the first hour, hour and a half, we're going to call it the normal part and then the, the psychotic part. Okay. <laughs> for ease of reference. The normal part, I was chilling. I was enjoying it. I was interested, you know, a bunch of questions coming up, really curious to see where it was going to go, how things were going to get resolved, you know, moments of suspense, a lot of, a lot of good things happening, but in a lot of ways, not abnormal movie experiences, mm-hmm. you know, just like watching a good, suspenseful, intriguing movie. But then the last 30, 45 minutes, I feel like I lost my mind. I had no clue what was going on. I was so goddamn confused. I was lost. I was blown away. Time vortex. That's the best way to describe it. Because in the moment, I was just like, what the hell is happening? 
dude, I could not, I could not wrap my head around it. And it just sent me down a rabbit hole. I had to do a lot of Googling, a lot of Googling. Yeah, yeah, like you texted me. You were like, I have so many questions. And what you said something like, I can only pray Google has the answers. And I responded yes. with, if you go down the Mulholland Drive rabbit hole, you might not come back out in time for this recording. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I satisfied a lot of my bewilderment. And I feel like I, I, I've got a much better understanding after my, my Google journey. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's an important thing for this movie is because um, I have seen this movie a bunch of times. And, you know, I remember the first time I watched it, I had that same exact feeling. I, I was losing my mind. Like, I felt like part of the movie was cut out and I just was had a bad copy or something the first time I saw it because of that yeah. crazy jump in that last act of the movie. And once you realize that it's like, no, that's very purposeful – and it's kind of like, okay, this movie becomes more of an exercise in, in I, I think rather than exercise, uh, there's some quotes that I read from critics that say, you know, this is a, a mystery thriller film in the sense that it gives the audience a mystery to unravel rather than our characters, like in Under the Silver Lake. And mm. and I, I think that's a, a big part of a lot of David Lynch's films, um, and that's going to have to be something that we, we discuss to to a great extent as we you know break down this movie and and analyze it as as best as we can and I did my research too because there's so many interpretations and theories and and accepted things or or popular things and less popular ideas about this movie it's it's almost never ending like I said you can get lost in the rabbit hole forever so true with with the research that you've done I think an important thing um for David Lynch movies and really any good movie is, you know, how it sticks with you. After you watch this, this movie definitely stuck with you, right? You were still thinking about it the next day and now, right? Oh, I, yes. Resounding yes. <laughs> I think that's a, a, a characteristic of great movies is that, you know, Zach and I have said before, the worst response you can have to, to a movie, to a book, to a TV show, to any art, to any created media is that you just forget about it. You know, it's better to, to have an extreme response, whether you love it or hate it, than just to be like, eh, that was okay, and you forget about it. And yeah. that's what I love about David Lynch movies, that even if you don't understand it, if you're totally lost, you can still wake up the next day and just be like, what the hell was that? What was going on? You'll think about random shots and scenes that, you know, you really didn't even notice the first time. And I think that's the beauty of it, this almost ethereal and on some level subconscious storytelling that he's able to capture the the way that he goes about his creative process and it's amazing yeah the film was very thematic in the sense that a lot of times he was telling a story and setting a mood and nobody was even talking just the way the film is shot the audio just just everything about the scene just said so much completely independent of of anyone talking or saying anything and it was really an interesting experience. Oh, yeah. I, I think uh, we've said it on here. It's a common thing in all of film. But the, the golden rule or one of the golden rules of, of filmmaking is show, don't tell. And David Lynch is a master of that. You know, there's never any get, – we never get bogged down in any expository dialogue. You know, we never get bogged down in a scene where the movie comes to a grinding halt and the character starts explaining things to another character that that character would clearly know. <laughs> but we need to know as an audience, 
this movie is all just we're we're shown things and and that's something that I want to get into a lot with this discussion is that you know everything has a reason everything has a place nothing is just put there for no reason or or out of laziness every single shot in editing and you know the the mise en scène the placement of of you know if you see a fan in a scene, it's there for a reason. It's not just there because it fills space. It's there for a specific reason. And I love that stuff. I do have to ask you, before we jump into this movie, because I know we got tons of questions. Like Justin said, he has notes, which I'm very excited to hear from. Last time you were on, when it was you, me, and Ben, we discussed Under the Silver Lake. At the beginning of that discussion, I asked Ben a question because he, at the time, was the only one that could answer it because of your lack of experience with David Lynch. Uh, ben has seen this movie. Um, I think if Justin remembers, and just to remind our audience, I dragged Ben to eight weeks, a movie every week, a different David Lynch movie for eight weeks in a row at an art house cinema when we lived near each other in Athens, Ohio. And uh, he got that experience. He definitely How had is he a... still friends with you? <laughs> <laughs> I think it made our bond stronger. <laughs> but uh, I asked him in our Under the Silver Lake episode that after he watched Under the Silver Lake, um, I asked him if he thought it was Lynchian. And if I remember correctly, he said something like, it had some aspects that made him think of David Lynch, but not as a whole. I wanted to ask that same question to you now, now that you've seen um, Mulholland Drive, and I know since that's the only David Lynch movie you've seen, I do think it is very indicative of his style. Um, do you see some similarities between Under the Silver Lake and Mulholland Drive? Yes. I saw a lot of similarities as I was watching Mulholland Drive, I, I thought a lot of Under the Silver Lake. You know, there was, there was one really specific instance that, that I think Under the Silver Lake must have done that would have been a nod to David Lynch. Mm -hmm. And it had to be have been the um, ability to become invisible when you're behind a bush. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we had two instances in Mulholland Drive where people were in bushes, and so they were practically invisible effectively yes. invisible okay rita when she's all distraught making her way you know right after the accident she sleeps in a bush and people walk in her direction downstairs and don't even notice her and then when they're going into the 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 uh house number 15 or 16 or whatever mm -hmm. and and they're they're hiding behind a bush you know creeping on this guy he did not notice them, and they were being obvious, okay? Yeah, because then don't they just, like, one of them hoists, uh, uh, Rita hoists Naomi Watts into the window? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, of course, stood out. And there were some other things in the movie. I'm going to be honest. I don't remember exactly all the parallels that really made me think of sure. um, Under the Silver Lake. But there were quite a few times just with the the way it was shot and really the vibe of the movie – um, just this whole mysterious and and surreal feel to the whole thing felt a lot like Under the Silver Lake. There's a lot of weird things going on that are just making you say, what the hell? Like, th like that scene where the guy's talking about his dream and he's all, you know, I, I, we were both really scared. I looked through the wall, blah, blah, blah. Um, early on, I'm sure mm -hmm. we'll get into the scene later. But that really reminded me of Under the Silver Lake. Oh sure, and that's our that's our actual direct connection because the the guy who's recounting his dream is played by Patrick Fischler, who's the guy with all the life masks in Under the Silver Lake. Oh, oh, yeah, the guy who gets killed by uh, the owl's kiss. Look at that! 
Look at that. Yeah, I, I don't recall if I said it on our Under the Silver Lake discussion, but um, the first time I saw Under the Silver Lake when I finished it, uh, kind of one of the, the big things that hit me was like, wow, someone's finally done it. Like, I've seen a, a film not by David Lynch that made me think of a David Lynch film and not just, like, trying to imitate him, but actually doing their own thing. Under the Silver Lake was doing their own thing, but it still had that, that vibe, that mysteriousness, and I love that stuff. Right. But it, there was a clear difference in just the amount of disorientation <laughs> in Under the Silver Lake versus Mulholland Drive. Oh, yeah. Mulholland and... Drive has to be one of the most disorienting films, and it doesn't even try to reorient. By the oh, end, yeah. you're just left knocked off your feet like what just happened. So what you're saying is that um, in the next few weeks, you just want to plow right through David Lynch's filmography and get so confused you can't function anymore. Because <laughs> this is not unique in his filmography. A lot of his movies are, are very um, puzzlish in this way, in terms of trying to figure out how to interpret it. Has he done anything else that's good? Everything he's done is good, Justin. <laughs> Even his I don't music. Know. I think I need to take it slow, all right? With that, the David Lynch. Fair. I need to ease my way into this. I might go crazy if I watch too much David Lynch. <laughs> you need one of the you need one of the um the more like uh, I think if you watch the straight story next, there's like no weirdness to that. It's just very very depressing. And oh, that's um, what I Yes, yeah, that that's what you get. You either get this abstract um surrealism of David Lynch or you get incredible depression. Because that's uh, his his breakthrough was his second film which was uh, The Elephant Man. And right, right. that's, you know, the biopic about the Elephant Man, and that's just the, one of the saddest movies ever. Um, but his first film was Eraserhead, which is yeah. one of the most, you know, jarring experiences and horrifying things I think anybody's ever seen. Um, and you kind of have that, that, that balance and that trade-off. And I think the only other thing you could get is Twin Peaks, just because there's so much going on in Twin Peaks. You know, there's three seasons of it in a movie. That you know, you get a lot of more lightheartedness. You get a lot of these different tales and stuff. Even though the the mythology is there, um, it's it's David Lynch has his style, and if you love it, you love it. If you can't wrap your head around it, you know it, it takes a lot of practice to to get to a point where you can appreciate it. I think it requires a lot of mental fortitude watching this stuff. <laughs> yes. So uh, a little background, of course. I think first and foremost, I want to say if you've never seen this movie, um, definitely check it out. Uh, it's going to be crazy. I think David Lynch, of course, even if you haven't seen his stuff, he has a uh, um, uh, reputation that you will be looking at something and watching something very unique. This movie, I would say, it's very interesting to watch both with someone else's thoughts and without, because, of course, you can make your own ideas. But I've l even loved rewatching this movie after doing the research, thinking about it so many different ways. Um, but either way, if you listen to us talk about it, you listen to anyone else, Definitely check it out. So this movie was completed in early 2001. It actually premiered at Cannes in May. Um, he won the Best Director Award uh, for this movie. He actually shared it with uh, Joel Cohen for, I think, The Man Who Wasn't There, which I've never seen. Um, but uh, this premiered, like I said, in May at Cannes in 2001, but it released in late 2001 after 9-11. So this was a post-9-11 movie for the world, Justin. We always have to have to put that in context. True, true. <laughs> it is his ninth feature film, uh, actually following up 
the Straight Story from 1999. So, you know, after he did the Straight Story, which is actually a, a Disney movie, so David Lynch did a Disney movie, um, he goes, you know, all out with, with this one. Wait, and this guy did a Disney movie? Yes, and it was The Straight Story, which I don't know if you're familiar with. Uh, the Straight Story is the tale of the old man named Alvin Straight who rides a tractor across the country to see his dying brother. And that, that like, actually happened in, in reality. And you can, like, find – you can see his tractor at some museum somewhere, and uh, it was a big news story. And David Lynch was the one who made the biopic about him. So this isn't a kid's movie. Um. I think if a kid watched it, it would be their first experience with, like, true sadness because – I knew you were going to say that. I literally was about <laughs> to say true sadness. It is It is very Gosh. much about death. Like, like the guy, um, Alvin Strait, is very old. His brother, like, has a stroke and he's dying and he has to go see him before he dies. And, you know, he doesn't have a license because he's so old and frail, so he has to drive this tractor. And it's about, like, the people he encounters along the way. Think of it – it's like – the most depressing version of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Like, you know Pee-wee's Big Adventure? He meets all the people along the way to find his bike, and they all fall in love with him because he's this goofy, wonderful character, and he, and he helps them out and gives them good advice. This is like if Pee-wee Herman was an old man facing his death in the movie and in real life because the actor died. Like, well, he filmed the movie, died, and then the movie came out, and it's great. It's, it's such a, 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 an emotional movie. It's fantastic. But there's no surrealism to it, really. Except there yeah. is a scene where one woman screams at him because she's like, every day I drive my car up and down this road, I have to to go to work, and every day I hit a deer. I don't know where they come from. I keep hitting deer. And it's a great scene. Can I help you, lady? No, you can't help me. No one can help me. I've tried driving with my lights on. I've tried sounding my horn. I scream out the window. I, I roll the window down and bang on the side of the door and play fumbling enemy real loud. I have prayed to St. Francis of Assisi, St. Christopher too. What the heck? I've tried everything a person could do, and still, every week, I plow into at least one deer. I have hit 13 deer in seven weeks driving down this road, mister. And I have to drive down this road every day, 40 miles back and forth to work. I have to drive to work, and I have to drive home. <sighs> Where do they come from? He's dead. And I love dear. <laughs> And that's, like, the only surrealistic bit. It's not even surrealism. It's just weirdness that this woman's just freaking out. Um, It's a great movie. So, of course, as many movies we do on Cinemodities, I think uh, the only one, Black Swan was was the black sheep of this series, the one that made a shitload of money. This movie did not do well at the box office. And as most Lynch films do, they received mixed reviews upon release. 
Some people said, oh, man, it's, it's a masterpiece. Some people said it's complete nonsense. I have no idea what was going on. And, of course, it takes some time for them to get uh, re-evaluation, to, to get, you know, critically analyzed. Once time has passed, people can really, you know, let it breathe and see it, what it is. And this movie regularly now appears on lists of films that regard things like films you need to see, best films of the 2000s, best films ever, most important films. And I definitely want to say that I think, even though this isn't my favorite David Lynch project, I think this is one of the most significant films in the context of storytelling. You know that saying where it's like, uh, what they, they say it's something like, there's only like six stories that you can ever tell? Like like, yeah, yeah. I think that I, I'm a, a fan of that. You know, you have all these, these basic setup for stories, and I totally believe that, you know, stories are finite, they get repeated, and the way that makes them infinite is the way that the human mind can reconstruct them. And David Lynch has done exactly that. That's why I appreciate and respect David Lynch as a filmmaker, not just because I love weird shit that he puts out, because he is finding unique ways to tell stories that they've never been told before. And... That's what I think this movie is. This is his storytelling masterpiece. He's found a way to take a story, a very small story, I would say, and tell it in an incredibly unique way. And the other thing I love about it, because of that, is that since everything is constructed so meticulously and with care in this film, even beginning to understand this movie at its base level is an exercise in reworking the way your brain thinks. And I love that stuff. You know, sure, we can watch Like Mike for days and, and, and other movies Justin and I have seen together, the Bad Boys movies. You don't need Let's to... Let's go. When are we doing that one? <laughs> you don't need to think in a new way to understand or appreciate those movies. Lynch movies, you need to actually start to, to realize and think about your own thought process. You know, it's like, it's like learning new stuff in, in math or any field. You need to try and wrap your head around the thought process of someone else so you can start to understand it as well. It's a learning experience, and I love that about this movie. So did you learn something from this movie, Justin? <laughs> I learned that I'm going crazy. No, I did. I, I It's a really interesting take on psychology, actually, because yes. the whole movie is just all about Diane's psyche, and it really made me just think about dreams and, you know, what what it's like to be in a dream and then the fact that he managed to capture that in a movie is just incredible oh yeah and and i'm glad you bring that up the the dream aspect um because of course with the prevailing theories of this film we'll have to talk about the concept of dreams but last week i know ben and i talked about a quote from uh david reese who said all the interesting movies are either puzzles or dreams and this this quote actually um because Ben asked, I'll, I'll say for you and our audience again, when he was saying this quote, dream definitely referred to, um, you know, the dream that you have when you're asleep, like these fanciful things, these fantasies. Um, we, last week we had a little discussion of, you know, dreams as in aspirations and goals. But this quote definitely came from, you know, every movie is either, pu- either a puzzle or... Every great yeah, movie. all the interesting ones are either a puzzle or a dream. And I think you'll appreciate this. Uh, this quote came up in when he was discussing spirited away and he loved that movie because it was like a dream you know there's no Mm. real puzzle to figure out in spirited away you're just here in this wonderful world of these spirits and and you know all Mm. this craziness and just along for the ride also one of the greatest movies ever spirited away 
this movie definitely, I think, is the overlap of those two things. It's a puzzle like we've described and are going to describe more of, but it also is very dreamlike. And maybe not for the whole movie. Maybe that ramps up a lot when we get to, you know, Club Silencio and and the David Lynch aspect really starts to kick in. But, I would argue for the whole movie. Oh, okay. I, I guess you're right, because even from the opening scenes, you know, that when when Betty's being dropped off, or not dropped off really, but when she gets off the airplane in L.A. and she's talking with the old people and, like, the the audio mixing, it, it it's so clear that it's, like, you know, dubbed or looped. It looks like these words and the volume is too loud for what's coming out of their mouths and the things yeah. that they're saying are so just corny and and so like you know this is she's a, a new young woman in hollywood and it's like i wish you all yeah. the best betty and it's just like well it's time to say goodbye betty it's so nice traveling with you thank you irene i was so excited nervous sure great to have you to talk to remember i'll be watching for you on the big screen okay irene won't that be the day good luck betty dear take care of yourself and be careful I will. Thanks again. Betty, it was so nice meeting you. All the luck in the world. Thank you. Bye-bye. Everything's over the top, so I do I do agree with you to that extent, that, you know, there is this dreamlike quality in the sense that even though you're seeing things that appear to be in reality, everything's just a little strange. And you know something's off, but it takes some time for you to really start to be able to pinpoint exactly what is off about what you're seeing. Yeah, I actually went through after the movie and after settling, you know, digesting it a bit. I went through like scene by scene, and actually I see parallels in almost every one with just a dreamlike aspect. Okay, right on, right on. In a lot of really interesting ways that I'm like, holy shit, that's actually like a dream I've had or like being in a dream. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think we we do have to because we're going to talk about scenes, we're going to talk about, you know, the the, the ideas and theories behind this movie. Um, I do have to mention, I think you, you cannot talk about this movie without mentioning this. Um, the, the screenplay for this film originally started off as a pilot for a TV show. And this is not any, you know, you know uh, hidden information. This is all over the place that they filmed the pilot. Uh, they showed, you know, the dailies and I think the rough cuts to ABC, the channel, and ABC turned it down. And Lynch didn't really know what to do with it, um, and eventually he decided that he wanted to rework it into a feature film. And so I think a lot of critics, when this movie first came out, um, they heard this, and they, they read about this, or they were became privy to this information, and the people who were detractors of this movie, or people who didn't you know, think it was as meaningful or uh, symbolistic as it really is, I think they took this as they say, oh, that's, that's our answer. This was originally a TV show pilot. So anything that doesn't get an answer is just David Lynch being lazy and saying, and these things would have gotten solved in further episodes. Yeah, but- that's, that's something I wanted to ask you about because I've read that too. And, and a lot of people like to write off something and, and don't want to, you know, think about why he was in the movie and they'll say, well, well, it was because he was a TV show. So he did that. No, he made a goddamn movie and he knew he was making a movie. Yes. It started out that way, but I think it's a cop out 
to try and write something off as because yes. it, it was going to be a TV show. Do you agree with that? Oh yeah, we are we are in complete agreement because I I think that like I've said already, David Lynch is not a lazy filmmaker. He's not a lazy storyteller. Right. Everything is there for a very specific reason. And there's a great a great quote from David Lynch when he's discussing this movie and about, you know, how the the transition from TV show pilot to feature film. He says, "One night I sat down, the ideas came in, and it was a most beautiful experience. Everything was seen from a different angle. Now, looking back, I see that the film always wanted to be this way." It just took this strange beginning to cause it to be what it is. And I think this, this quote lends exact credence to the, the idea that this is, you know, a, a fully fleshed out concept. But the yes. thing that I love about David Lynch is the, the choice of words. He says, I see that the film always wanted to be this way. He does not say, this is what I always wanted the film to be. He, mm-hmm. He's talking about the film as this creature, as this living thing that's finding its place and and I think that's exactly that. What's David Lynch for you? You know, that's the way he thinks. That's a lot of how a lot of great filmmakers think, or the ones that we consider great. You know, they see these films as these living things. But I am I'm glad we're in total agreement that you cannot write anything off just because you'd be like, oh, they would have talked about that in episode two. That character would have came back. And it's like, no, right. there there was no episode two. They don't write the rest of the show, especially back in the late mid to late 90s when this was going on. They don't write more of the show until the pilot gets picked up. So there was no, like, I'm sure people had ideas of where the show was going to go and, and things like that. But it's not like they had to scrap eight seasons of something and condense it down to two hours. This is right. its, its own complete project. So we had to get that out of the way because that is, that is no good. Don't do it. Don't don't write this movie off because it started as a TV show. That's happened before with other things. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but if you write off one, you have to write off all of them. And we that's no good. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, it's a disservice to this movie. And it's I get why people do it because there's so many things that are just like, why the hell is this in there? What's going on? Really hard to explain. It's the easy way out, but it's not it's not correct. Yes. So in your research, I think this is the last question I wanted to ask you before I throw it over to you because I, I also want to mention you did say uh, when, when you had time to digest this movie, uh, to me that sounds like after you, after you calm down texting me constantly questions about yeah. this movie and you were able to think about it. Um, yeah. So in your research, uh, I don't know if you found this, but um, uh, in the original DVD release of this film, uh, there was a little insert, like a little card in the DVD case. That yeah, I got was... some notes on that shit. Perfect. So this was titled David Lynch's 10 Clues to Unlocking This Thriller. And I'm sure we're going to want to talk about a lot of these questions. I just want to make sure you were aware of that. Um, and, and I do have the questions in front of me so we can talk about them as they come up or in order or anything like that. But I wanted to throw it over to you now, Justin. With all all this crazy background and context I've given, we can finally get into this movie yeah what what do you got in your notes i know you said your notes were unorganized justin did some bookkeeping uh to try and get the important ones right before we recorded but i think that's perfect this your notes are as unorganized as the narrative structure of this movie so 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 what did you think uh overarching thoughts did you did you just want to rant with questions for a little little while the the floor is yours (laughs) okay yeah let's let's just spitball on this one a bit so 
you know, with with response to David Lynch's goddamn insert, my only opinion is I'm not in a high school literature class. His insert goddamn reads like <laughs> like, you know, I'm taking a literature test on a book, like, oh, testing if I really understood it. Like, I get what he's going for, that he's trying to, you know, prod people to look in the right directions to really think about it. But goddamn, give me more. I want more. I want more from him. I don't want him to, you know, to guide me towards discovering the movie on my second and third watches. I want some goddamn concrete answers. I'm still going to watch the movie again because I have to watch <laughs> this movie again and think about it. But I wish he gave me more. I just that, that's fair. I think that's a that's a hallmark of Lynch is that he's very um, secretive with yeah. a lot of his filmmaking. One of my favorite stories ever is that uh, in his first film, Eraserhead, there is a a baby, I'm doing air quotes, the baby is a, a horribly deformed creature. There's a great line in the movie where the mother says, there's a baby, Henry, and the girl who gave birth to the baby goes, they're not even sure if it is a baby. There's a baby. It's at the hospital. Mom! And you're the father. But that's impossible. It's only no, been... They're still not sure it is a baby. It's premature, but there's a baby. And it is it is it is crazy looking. It's very deformed. It's um it's you know constantly shrieking. Um, if, if you Google like a racerhead baby for Justin or anyone in the audience, you will see a picture of this, and it is very unsettling. But it's something like David Lynch and the art director on Eraserhead are the only two people in the world who know how they created that prop. And they went as far as like blindfolding crew members and actors, so no one would see how they created that prop. That's how secretive David Lynch is with his work. And so okay. I, I agree with you that when you read his 10 clues to unlocking this thriller, especially the one, notice the appearance of the red lampshade. It's like, I know. Okay, Come on, am, I, am I back in high school? Are we reading Shakespeare again? Exactly. <laughs> Even though man. I agree with you there, this is his style. But I, I'm with you that I read some of these, you know, and I'm like, wow, I could see this on, like, I, I would bet you that there's some film school out there where they watch Mulholland Drive, and then the quiz is these ten questions. <laughs> Dude, that would make such a good quiz. But I literally, if I felt like I was, you know, in a college class with his questions, you know, I think I'd feel a little better. But I literally felt like <laughs> I was being talked to like I'm a high schooler all of a sudden again. And I'm just yes. like, God damn it. Yes. What is felt realized and gathered at the club silencio that's like yeah. that is like exactly like an act <laughs> reading question <laughs> i know where is aunt ruth during the film like <laughs> shut up man get out of here oh that's good that's good <laughs> i'm sorry i even asked you david <laughs> no that's a, that's a good point for sure um okay what else what else you got what's in your notes yeah, so I also read that he said the movie tells, you know, a complete story from start to finish for all people who feel like it's it's just left open-ended, you know, mm -hmm. Inception style. There's no actual there's no actual legit story that you can find, you know, he he did say, "Hey, there is something." So I liked that. Yeah, that that's good. And I I think that's also what he does a lot of, you know, even if um his endings are not satisfying, might be one way to put it. Um, maybe not a, a complete closure. Uh, I think that's another part of his style is that, um, you know, see Twin Peaks if you ever want to know what an unsatisfying ending is, but also some of the greatest endings in, in television history. But yeah, that's another one of his styles that he tells oh. stories 
it's just not going to be, you know, there's never a wrap-up, really. It's, it's, it's everything is open to interpretation. You don't watch yep. it and go, oh. Like, I know for Showgirls, Heather and I talked about that last, like, 15 minutes where it's like you learn about Nomi's past and you're like, oh, this all, like, recontextualizes things and it makes more sense. This, like I said before, you need to rework how you think to, to even begin to feel that way, that you've contextualized things. I'm a person who really likes to get a complete understanding of mm-hmm. things. You know, I want to I wanna be able to completely wrap my head around, get that closure. And so a couple of things that typically bother me are questions that can't be answered. Sure. I'm okay with hard questions, but I don't like questions that can't be answered. And also, typically, I don't like movies that are just all like a dream and stuff gets written off as, oh, it was just a dream or mm-hmm. it, it wasn't real. I put air quotes there, too, since we're doing air quotes today. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that, that's fair. I mean, um, that's that's something that I think we've discussed in the past and and that, you know, a lot of people have that where they think it's a, a cop out or a write off, like you said, where where something yeah. was a dream. Um I, I feel that – I think it's a case-by-case case basis for me. I've never had an issue where, like, if if a, if a story happens and then you realize that it was, like, the main character's dream and they wake up at the end and, you know, that's kind of the end of the movie. I, I think that people will say, oh, it was all a dream, so it doesn't matter. And it was like, well, that character still had those experiences. If it weren't in reality, you know – the character shouldn't be like, oh, well, that was a dream. I didn't learn anything, and they go make the same mistakes. I think that there's a point to it in some films. Um, there's some cases, like I said, case-by-case case Like Alice in Wonderland? I think Alice in Wonderland is a, is a good example of that because she learns yeah. from her experiences in this fantasy world. Um, and we're talking about the original Alice in Wonderland, not the Tim Burton one, uh, where yeah. she, break, the book. she learns to break like dance the in the end. <laughs> Where she what? Learns to break dance in the end. Have you ever seen the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland remake? I did. I don't really remember it. It is terrible. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. Um, yeah, so so with that said, you know, again, I I typically don't care for those styles, mm-hmm. um, especially Inception is is kind of the standout one for me. I loved Inception, but I hated that they just left the top spinning. So I'm like, it, none of it was real, none of it actually happened, whatever, because I never got an answer, so that's just as good of an answer. But for this movie, like I said earlier, I actually think the dream was used as an incredible um, just just perspective into Diane's psyche. Oh, and yeah. not only was it just an excellently well-done dream, in that it very much had some... In- keen characteristics of a dream um you learned a lot about diane from it and where she's at and what she's struggling with and what happened and and how she's reconciling it and and just grappling with it in her mind so he does it better than i've ever seen it done before by far i i think that's a that's a really good point because you know in the i i get i guess we should preface this with the the prevailing theory and probably the accepted theory i would say about this movie is that from the start kind of the start uh from the car crash at the beginning all the way up to uh the blue box being opened is diane's naomi watts as diane selwyn her dream slash fantasy slash you know a coping mechanism whatever you want to call it right that is the dream i guess we'll call it for you know sake of argument 
that is the first, you know, pretty much hour and 50 minutes of the movie. And then the last 25, 30 minutes, I don't know how long the credits are, but this is a 220 movie. Um, the, the last bit of the movie is reality. And I think that this movie does so well because in that last bit, you are so jarred. It's, it is whiplash yes. by what happened. You are so lost in thinking about why people's names have changed, why it's jumping around in nonlinear storytelling that you can't get a holding on what the real story is. But once you're able to parse through that 20 minutes, you realize that most of your understanding of reality has come from that first dream sequence or that that first hour and 50 minutes of the movie. And it makes sense. You understand more about these characters and this story because you've you've seen these things in this subconscious, you know, Diane's subconscious way. And and that is what lets you flesh out this story – and like I said, that's why I find this movie so significant in terms of storytelling, that it's using these things that didn't really happen, that are surreal, that are dreamlike, to inform a very tiny story of this woman, you know, crashing and burning in Hollywood. Yeah, the whole movie is actually five minutes of, like, reality. And that, that, that is like why a it's night. in this a series, um, the chewed up and spit out, because it is about a Hollywood actress, you know, getting chewed up and spit out, kind of by the industry and kind of by herself. Well, and kind of by the world. We'll get mm-hmm. there. We'll get there. <laughs> I want to talk about the dream thing. So sure. I don't like to accept something's a dream until I absolutely have to okay. in a movie. And so I tried alternative explanations. And, and, you know, actually, just like you described, that was my exact experiences of what the fuck did I just watch? What the hell was that? And actually trying to reconcile everything that happened. And that's that's literally like the first quarter page of my notes is just like none of this makes sense this is inconsistent this is inconsistent the only way that i have to reconcile those is that it's a dream Mm -hmm. and then once i'm able to start thinking about it in that way um it makes just so much sense and i think it's it's so interesting to think about it as a dream think about what each scene represents in the context of a dream Oh, yeah, and I think not only the, the scenes in the context of the dream or like you said, Diane's psyche, but even how certain characters are portrayed and what they do in the dream that when we see them later on in the, in the reality portion that you're like, you know, it, it, it adds so many narrative layers. And, and right. I guess I, 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 there's one, the big example is um, the split of Rita and Camilla in the dream. But I guess to, to preface that, the, the real story, like you said, the, the five-minute story, is that uh, Naomi Watts, Diane Selwyn, wins a jitterbug dance contest. This makes her interested in acting, so she moves to Hollywood. She tries to out for the lead in the uh, Sylvia North story. She loses Lives in to... her dead aunt's house. Yes, lives in her dead aunt's house. Um, she she loses the part to Camilla Rhodes, the real version of Rita in the dream, and then they engage in this, like, l- lesbian love affair, but uh, Rita, or Camilla, eventually, like, turns her away because she's using her sexuality to get bigger and better parts with the... Kind of, I think it is a director. Uh, Adam Kesher is still a director in yeah, reality. He's Justin just not Thoreau. the director of the Sylvia North story. But um, and then so Diane feels that she has been like you know chewed up and spit out, and by the industry, by this person that she loved, she gets broken up by uh, broken up with by Camilla, and she's so distraught that she takes a hit out on Camilla, 
and she grieves about it, goes into this fantasy state, like I said, possible coping mechanism. When she comes out of it, she can't handle it, and the film ends with her suicide. So, so that's, that's the story, but like we said, there's this giant dream sequence that just fleshes out all the meaning behind that story. Okay, can we just say, well, oh, God, I have so many things I want to say. <laughs> do you, first off, what do you think? Was it, was it a dream? Are you just bought it? Do you just buy it? Do you, you, are you just interested in other theories for fun, but you accept it's a dream? Where are you at? So, so I, I don't know if I would call it – I think for, for discussion, you know, dream is a good way to put it. I, I like thinking about it more as this type of coping mechanism. Because right, but it was all in her head one way or another. Yes. I, I think that it's exacerbated by the fact that I, I do I wouldn't say I wouldn't say subscribe, but maybe I appreciate the greatly the theory that this this um this coping mechanism, this dream is not just because of her relationship with uh, Camilla and the thing that she's done, you know, getting her killed but also reflective on some past uh, childhood abuse or traumatic experiences. Yes. I think that's a really that's interesting where I lie the- more of is that she is, you know, I, I it, it seems like, you know, in when we do get reality, when she wakes up and her neighbor comes by to pick up like the dishes or whatever, she's like, come on, yeah. Diane, it's been three weeks. And so it's like Diane's been in this state right. of, you know, catat- like catatonic state, this maybe bout of like melancholia. It's, it's almost like dissociation. Or hallucination, but uh, like we right, said, like she's been having the... like this extended schizophrenic or something. Well, she's not schizo, but yeah, I like where you're going with that because she's been out of it for a long time. It's not like she just went to sleep for a night and dreamt all this. Yes, and I think that that's why I like this. Like like she's you said, this just is lost in her mind. This is one of the best like you know uses of a of a dream in a movie because it's not really just a dream. It's not like someone fell asleep and. You know, they have this whole experience, and they wake up on a train, and they're like, "Oh wow, now I got to go to work." It's really because it's like she is she is having this dissociative state, this hallucination. She's creating this fantasy world to retreat in, where everything is better for her. Right. And I, I think that my favorite part about how you know, like we were saying, that the dream lends all of this feeling and emotion and explanation to this slight story is that Camilla Rhodes is Rita in her dream. But another person is Camilla Rose Camilla. also in her dream. And I love that her her way to deal with this is that she's separated this representation of Camilla Rhodes into Rita, who loses her memory, who's purely yep. innocent, who she can kind of mold to be, you know, this this person she's friends with or lovers with. And then the other half of Camilla is this woman, this actress that by the the background machinations of the evil Hollywood industry is screwing her out of parts. Like, I love that her psyche has separated the good and bad parts of Rita because that that's what she's dealing with on the, you know, the, the topmost level, that she had Rita killed, and she has to deal with, it's like, why did I kill this person? Because there's bad parts. She's not all bad. Her psyche is able to separate those, and I love that motif in this movie. Yeah, but can we just acknowledge... All right, all right. Before I get there, okay. Yeah, just just to add to what you said about, you know, there's a lot of background trauma to Diane that it's not just she's here because of a bad relationship with Camilla. This mm-hmm. is almost the icing on the cake to just a really shitty and troublesome abusive life that, you know, she just couldn't deal with anymore that and this just really pushed her over the edge. There's yeah. some there's some thoughts of, you know, childhood sexual abuse 
that I don't completely understand um, where people get that from 100%, but ideas that those old people are actually her grandparents. Mm -hmm. There's apparently a picture of the lady, Irene, I believe her name is. Yep. And she's holding a little blonde baby, which can be interpreted as being Diane. Yep. Um, and the I don't see where people exactly get child abuse. I'm, and sexual I'm with abuse you there that. that the the sexual abuse has always been um, a little bit of a stretch to me, or maybe not, kind of a stretch. Maybe grasping at some straws, some really minute details. But I do think the argument is there for that she has experienced some trauma childhood or not but in her lead up to yeah. getting to hollywood there has been some trauma because i i definitely think with the symbolism of this movie that's what the color blue represents like blue appears so much in you know like one the blue key that she gets from the hitman to signal that the job is done that camilla is dead but right. we see blue so many other times and it always comes paired with you know some some issues with with the 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 fantasy this dream this coping mechanism falling apart and reality creeping in and knowing that she has to deal with it. So I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the blue there. hair, silencio, yes, and silence, which is typically oh, that's right, that's that's where the childhood abuse stuff comes from. So silencio is typically what people tell you when you know they're abusing you and your child, and they're yeah, not. You can't tell anybody. Yep, yeah, yeah, and, and I, I think there's... that holds for trauma as well. Yes. Where, you know, whatever happened is like, you know, you can't talk about it or somebody tells you not to talk about it. And, um, you know, that that could be as traumatic as the actual experience, having to bottle it up, that type of stuff. Right. And I think the the big one, though, that really lends credence to the theory is that scene where she's practicing for the part and she's with the older man and he's telling her, hey, be quiet, you know, don't tell anyone about this. And she's like, this isn't right. We shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. And she's so torn saying she's going to, you know, you should go to jail oh, or, or I'll kill you. And then he goes, you'll go to jail. So I think that's strongly represented, representative of her past struggles. Oh, oh, yeah, of, that's that's a good point, because I love that scene. And it's juxtap it's juxtaposition to when um, Betty and Rita are practicing it in the kitchen right. because when they're practicing it, it's terrible. Like, of course, Rita yeah. is, is not an actress. She's this, you know, car accident um, memento lady. and She might be an actress. We don't know. True, yeah. She doesn't know either. And But she's not reading the lines well. I think there's even one point where you can tell that she, like, loses her place and she's trying to yep. find the line again. But even yep. Betty is, you know... Not that great. And she's also playing it as very, like, angry and kind of over the top. But then when she goes to the actual audition, it's like, boom, like, sexuality, really close. Like, she's playing a completely different character. And yeah. and I think you're exactly right that it's, like, another instance of that, that trauma creeping in and, you know, at least coming from these real-life experiences. And she's kind of owning that scene. And we even get the shot where... The him, her and the man are close together, and she's the one who goes all in and she like grabs or takes his hand and puts it on her ass, and she's like yeah. owning that scene completely. Yep. And yo, everyone in that scene was way too touchy feely. <laughs> oh yeah. Way, and she's she's just cool with it though, you know. Yep, that's definitely one of my my favorite, uh, or not, maybe not favorite, but um, one of the scenes that made me think of you know chewed up and spit out. Because they're right. all so nice to her, and they're all like, you know, 
in this Hollywood mindset of, oh, we have this woman, we got to lure her in some way. And then they all, when she's leaving, they're all like, that was very good. That was great. We'll call you back. And then she leaves the room and they're all like, oh my God, that was amazing. Where, where'd you find her? We got to get her. And, yeah. and it's all that, that kind of that, that Hollywood background aspect that I love about it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that juxtaposition of scenes has always gotten me where it's just like one of the instances where you're like, she was not doing this at all in her rehearsal. And then she just does it perfectly. Yeah, in... where did that come from? Exactly. That's one of those instances where you're like, something's not right here. Yeah, and just yeah, and just the way that she's it's got this whole really sexual vibe with these older people, I think stems from her just having experienced that with older people and maybe sure. even in Hollywood. But, you know, it it's hard to say for sure. Yes, okay. yeah, the the interpretations. I I think that, you know, as we're going to go through more of these interpretations, um, there definitely isn't, I think as, as we're finding is, and as the audience will realize if you listen to us or if you've seen this movie, there's no one-size-fits-all interpretation. Like you said, you know, there's no hard answer to this question. There's no fixed answer. It's like something I've said before a lot with these types of things. Is like, it's like you're p- trying to put a carpet into a room that's too small for that carpet, as soon as you figure out how to get a corner in, another corner is going to pop up. And yeah. I really like that. I like my media that way. I don't like a lot of things, other things that way. But I love that from my stories in, in most cases. But that's exactly how these interpretations are going to go. You know, like we're going to have so many things. I don't think we're talk, going to talk about how they conflict in a lot of ways. But, you know, we're, we're not saying that we're going to solve this movie or anything at the end of this conversation <laughs> we'll lose it we'll have that it's always sunny moment with the, <laughs> the, the 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 board and the friggin all the strings going across it oh yeah the, the Pepe, sylvia yeah yeah have you have you ever heard the theory i only heard this maybe like a month or so ago but of course i think that's an early it's always sunny episode everybody loves that pepe sylvia thing um because it's just charlie going crazy working in the mailroom have you ever heard the theory that since Charlie is illiterate, which I think is canon in the show, like he can't read or write, he only like does those symbols and stuff like that, he's in the mailroom, and every single piece of mail or most mail he's getting is addressed to an address in Pennsylvania, which is where they live, and he can't read Pennsylvania, so he thinks it's Pepe Sylvia, and he doesn't know who that person is. Have you ever heard that theory? No. It's a very interesting idea for that character. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of crazy that he, he's misinterpreting pennsylvania as pepe sylvia because he's like i got boxes full of pepe jesus christ Charlie. that right there is the mail now let's talk about the mail can we talk about the mail please mac i'm dying to talk about the mail for you all day okay pepe sylvia this name keeps coming up over and over again every day pepe's mail is getting sent back to me pepe sylvia pepe sylvia i look at the mail well this whole box is pepe sylvia so i say to myself i gotta find this guy i gotta go up to his office i gotta put his mail in the guy's goddamn hands otherwise he's never gonna get it it's gonna keep coming back down here so i go up to pepe's office and what do i find out mac what do i find out there is no pepe sylvia the man does not exist okay so i decided oh shit buddy i gotta dig a little deeper there's no pepe sylvia you gotta be kidding me i got boxes full of pepe but anyway that was a quick aside i heard that a while ago and i thought it was very interesting that even yeah, though i never analyzed that episode really yeah yeah just as there are people analyzing uh david lynch films to death <laughs> there are apparently people analyzing it's always sunny to death as well yeah People like to find a lot of alternative explanations to things like that, which is good and fun. I don't entertain a ton of that stuff. 
Yeah, Unless some of them, only on I, occasion. I read some fan theories of things that like don't warrant fan theories, and I'm just like, right. This is like this is what I would read on Cracks.com in high school, you know? Yeah, like good job getting creative, but this this thing is just the way it is, and it's fine. You're just trying to make something up where it doesn't need to be made up. Yeah, like I hate that. But damn, hey, good. Have fun. Yeah, I this guess. is. Oh, definitely have fun, and it's good to you know challenge your brain and think these ways. But some people think too hard about certain things. Like I hate the the fan theory that like all of Rugrats is like this. PTSD induced dream and all the babies are dead and stuff like that and I'm just oh, like yeah and I'm like it's a, I'm like it's a kids show you got like you got like one person voicing like forty percent of the cast like come on it's not that yeah. deep <laughs> exactly isn't there another show where they do some shit like that another kids show oh I think yeah there's probably like a whole bunch of them for sure yeah there's another one where it's similar to that but all right all right here's what we need to talk about <laughs> yes. The real Camilla is a is a cunt. There's no other way to put it, man. So so Rita in real life, the real Camilla. Yeah. Real life Rita. Dude, okay, and, and just to Diane specifically, right? I get it that she's trying to make it in Hollywood. She's doing her whole thing with Justin Thoreau. But damn, she needlessly tortures Diane and it's fucked up. Oh yeah. That's, she she I'm, does not do a clean break. She's a <laughs> bitch to diane yeah and it's definitely that's one of the most like heartbreaking elements of this movie is once you understand like what diane is going through and then she gets invited to the party she gets taken up through like the little secret passageway and diane's like watching her that scene in the car yeah and diane's like oh what's gonna happen at this party like are we gonna get is she gonna apologize we gonna get back together all that stuff and it's like no it's like i purposely made you late to this party here's here's my soon-to-be husband like we're gonna sit at the same table and all that stuff and it's just like oh god like that's just i can see why she wants her dead (laughs) dude and she kisses the uh dream camilla i don't know her name in the real life Mm -hmm. but she kisses her right next to justin thoreau her future husband and it's like wait so you're apparently in an open relationship, and you express this in front of Diane, who you just broke it off with? Yeah. What that's the no fuck? Good. Yeah, and even – it seems like everybody – well, it seems like – maybe not everybody, but it's a known thing that Camilla is, like, getting her parts using her sexuality. Because there's that scene at that dinner party where Diane says something like, you know, I really wanted the lead, but Camilla got it. And it cuts to, to Coco when she's the mother, and she, like, has that look over to them where she's like, oh, of course she got it, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No. No good. No. I don't like her either. The real life Camilla. <laughs> if it was just you know a woman, you know, trying to make it and and using her sexuality, that's a story that's been told. Sure. Um, and it's like she shouldn't have to do that, but you might like start to sympathize with her. But boy, she's just such an asshole to Diane that oh, I have a hard the... time feeling any like sympathy even in the breakup scene where they're like naked on the couch and they're like making out and they're like getting ready to go down on each other and camilla's just like, yeah oh, we shouldn't do this anymore i'm breaking up with you and it's like that, is, that should have been done before the intimacy got started don't you think yes with your clothes on <laughs> yes oh my god even i'm gonna it... i'm gonna pounce on you naked and break up with you <laughs> yeah you know i will i will give the movie uh this is once again this is gonna sound great as the series that we're talking about the plight of women in hollywood this is just gonna sound awesome uh especially since i chose this series it does give the movie an excuse to show naomi watts without a shirt on 
and I can't complain about that. Love me some Naomi Watts. They had that in the dream. It was fine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, exactly. And I do have. I've said it before on this uh, on this podcast, and I'll say it again. Naomi Watts, hit me up. I'm available. I know you're married to Liv Shriver, but hit me up. <laughs> hey kids, it turns out that Naomi Watts is no longer married to Liv Shriver. She's actually now married to Billy Crudup. And I'm thinking this might be why she's stealing children instead of having any with him. So yes, I'm, I'm with you. She, she definitely has just, her life is not going well because of a lot of, a lot of because of Camilla in reality, for sure. Yeah, and her liking Camilla and Camilla treating her like absolute garbage. Yep. Oh, yeah. She could have let her down easy, you know, not Mm -hmm. tortured her. And guess what? Maybe Diane wouldn't be killing herself. I read on Wikipedia that she killed herself with a shotgun. That was definitely a pistol. Definitely. (laughs) Unless it was the the most sawed-off shotgun in the world. Oh, my God. (laughs) Both the barrel and the butt. Of the of the shotgun, she would not have a face. (laughs) Yes. Oh my god! Of the shoulders, and you clearly see. I think that it's a pistol. Yeah, Yeah, it's a fucking pistol. And speaking of Wikipedia, okay, I actually got in trouble on Wikipedia today. Ooh. I I go on there on my work computer, nonetheless. I go on Wikipedia for actually looking up the probit function. Okay. And. There's like you have one message on Wikipedia. Fuck, I got a message on Wikipedia, dude. They're telling me this guy tells me, oh, don't be deleting stuff from the Star Spangled Banner Wikipedia page. <laughs> Did you? I'm, I, I, bro, I maybe by accident. <laughs> why were you? I, why were you on? Well, one, why were you on the Star Spangled Banner page? And two, I don't why were you on the on that editing portion of the Star Spangled Banner that's what I'm saying, bro. Did I get IP hacked or something? Because I'm definitely not perusing the edit section of the Star Spangled Banner webpage (laughs) at work nonetheless. (laughs) That's great. They're they're like, don't do it again. You're going to get IP banned from Wikipedia. They didn't say that, but that was the the vibe I got. Like, you know, don't don't do this again, buddy. Like, you had no reason. There's like, there was no educational explanation for your deletion of something on the Star Spangled Banner. Like, what the fuck? What are you even talking about? That was a very weird thing that happened to me today. Oh my god! Yeah, did it? Did it give you any like context? Like a, yeah. No. no. Give me the link to the Star Spangled Banner page only. Okay. Okay. I just I'm I'm so intrigued by this, Justin, that I have <laughs> Dude, it blew I, me I, away. <laughs> I just pulled up the revision history for the Star Spangled Banner Wikipedia page, <laughs> and it looks like yesterday a duplicate word was removed, but that seems fine. Yeah, and then it looks like everything in June of this year was additions or fixing, like, punctuation and grammar. Someone's – I don't know. I don't know what's going on. That's great. <laughs> Did they replace the duplicate word and put it back? I don't think maybe so. They, maybe they get rid of revisions that they don't accept. Maybe. That so that could be it. would be on there. Yeah. You oh, got to I... do some, like, reverse – you know, take a snapshot of the internet like at yes. each day. Oh God, I just want to. That's that's great. <laughs> I, I I was hoping that they would give you some information where it would be something like you know, 
Excuse the contact you. Excuse me, Justin. You cannot delete the entirety of the Star Spangled Banner <laughs> Wikipedia page. You cannot change the lyrics to the. You cannot remove the word God from the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> Just imagine you going on a tear one night and you're like, I hate that song. I'm going to delete it from Wikipedia. <laughs> I know. They didn't give me a date when I apparently did this. Nothing. I'm just sitting here like, guy, do not falsely accuse me of some shit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> so, yes, Wikipedia, it's not a shotgun. They should, yeah, get those people in trouble. There's no shotgun in this movie. That's what I'm saying. Oh, man, that reminds me of the one time I did make an edit to Wikipedia, and they had something incorrect about a movie. Gosh, I don't remember what it was, but I like, you know, was getting into it and I, mm. I corrected that shit for accuracy and they were like, mm, this isn't a significant change. We're going to put it back. <laughs> They're like, you don't have a source. I gave them the time of the movie where what I said happened. I was like, that's the best source. Yeah, you guys source got the order of the events wrong. Movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You said you said event A caused event B, but that's not how it happened. It was more like, you know, uh, event D caused event B. I don't remember – but sure. I like I watched that shit. I got it right, and they're like, mm, "Not significant. You can't verify it." I'm like, "What? I can't just it's facts. It's literal facts about a movie. Get out of here!" Like, you know, when I, God, God, <laughs> I, I some of these you. Wikipedia, you know, moderators, bro, they're a little suspect to me. I'm telling you, dude. They got like a little bit of like a cult thing going on. They're like, ah, you're you're the new guy on the block. We don't respect anything you do. We're not going to verify it. This was done okay. by a guy with a thousand Wikipedia edits, so we trust him. Like, fuck mm, you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyone <laughs> listening who edits Wikipedia, if you're doing a good job, respect. Put those other guys in line, okay? <laughs> and get rid of the Star Spangled Banner page. <laughs> and, and delete the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> that has no place on Wikipedia. <laughs> That's great. I have not had a good time with the Wikipedia editorial review team. All right. Nothing but bad, bad responses from them. Okay. You heard it here first. Cinemodities podcast and restaurant fans unite. (laughs) Get at those Wikipedia moderators. Yo, they got to step up, man. They're not respecting legitimate, legitimate work and they're giving out false accusations. That's two big red marks if a, if they do a third strike you bet i'm coming on the next cinematic cinemodities podcast and fucking going off <laughs> right, on, right on. oh okay yeah good good tangent i'm glad you t- I didn't this was a first time of me hearing that story from justin so that was great <laughs> so yeah no no shotgun definitely pistol at the end um in, yeah. in a great i love the atmosphere she's sh- I love that ending scene. The The audio and the sound design is just so perfect. Like when the old people are like coming after and all like the screams and just noise is going on and then she shoots herself. It all cuts out and then all that smoke fills the room. Oh, I love that visual. Yeah.
Dude, you know what I got? I got really strong impressions of actually um, Requiem from a Dream in that last scene. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, because it reminded me of the woman in Requiem from a Dream who's on all the diet pills trying to get on the game show. Yep. Right? And she's hallucinating all these, like, things that are happening to her. And the fridge is coming at, is shaking and coming after her, right? Right. She goes from these hallucinations of like, I'm on a game show, I'm doing great, to all these like freak out hallucinations, which is exactly what happens in that scene. She goes from, oh my God, I'm living this great life, I'm with Rita, mm-hmm. to holy shit, these creepy old people are chasing me and I'm going to blow off my brains, just like somebody did and killed – well, I mean, they killed themselves for different reasons in Requiem from a Dream. Sure. But it's really similar. A lot of overarching themes there. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely um, similarities. I think Requiem for a Dream, even though it's not a David Lynch film, there's definitely some similarities in, in themes and, and style, you know. Uh, that's an Aronofsky film, probably my favorite Aronofsky film. Um, it's a good one. Yeah, oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, a lot less heroin use in this movie, and a lot yeah. less uh, ass to ass. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I Heather had never seen that movie, and I was like, yo, let's watch Requiem for a Dream. It's like about drugs and stuff. And I gave off the complete wrong impression. She thought we were watching like a movie about like people partying and having a good time doing drugs. <laughs> Bro, and then most, like, most of the, the movie, yeah, what well, the movie starts with them stealing the the, t- the mother's TV and selling yeah, it, and then yeah. like most of the movie is just the sore on their arms getting bigger and bigger, and they're scratching <laughs> at it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, great oh, movie, like great movie. All right. Back on topic, can we just give a shout-out to my girl Coco? Oh, she's sure. she's one of the best characters in this movie. Yeah, she's good. That's uh, She's an old-school Hollywood actress. Uh, Ann Miller is her name. She plays Coco. Yeah, she's good. She's great in this movie. She's a great actress. And I love that, you know, she's just um, she's just there in the dream, at least, as, you know, this kind of, like, uh, like, overseer, I would guess. You know, there's that scene where she's, like, yeah, I, uh, she's like, don't take me for a fool, but whatever issues you have, you need to work them out. And it's like, you know, she's trying to give good <laughs> advice. Um, I did want to mention, so so let's let's take a trip back to tenth uh, grade English class because oh, here we go. One of David Lynch's clues to unlocking this thriller is who gives a key and why. And so, so oh now, shit, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go very much into uh, high school. English teacher interpretations here because it is worded very specifically as who gives a key. Now there's multiple keys in this movie, of course. So so we have the one um, we have the one that uh, the the hitman leaves the blue key. We have the the key for the box that is in um, uh, Rita's purse, and then we have the key to Aunt Ruth's apartment. Yeah, yeah. So, so now this this is the point I'm trying to make. The question is who gives a key? No, we don't see anybody give Rita that key. It's just in her purse and she doesn't know where she got it. True. Technically, the hitman doesn't give Naomi Watts a key. She leaves it for her. The only true uh, giving that's of a key hairs a little bit. No? I know, that's why I said I'm going to my English teacher mindset right now. The only right. giving of a key we ever see is when Coco gives the key to Naomi Watts when she moves into her Aunt Ruth's apartment. Yeah, and she goes, you know, I assume you guys have some form of trust. Yes. She's like, I don't know that you're her, but I'm just going to – something like that. I agree with you that it is splitting hairs, but I think it's, I think it's a, 
an important distinction to note that we can think about it that way, that the key isn't truly given. Okay. Well, where are you going with this? Where do you take – so if Coco is the only key giver, where do, where do we go with this? Oh, so, so I think that that is in some way um, – so Coco gives her the key, you know, symbolically granting her entrance into that apartment, which I think is uh, uh, realistically granting her entrance to that apartment, symbolically granting her entrance into the collapse of this fantasy – because even though it takes a lot of time for you know the, the, the issues and problems and reality to set in for Diane to leave this fantasy, everything starts when she meets Rita. And she only meets Rita if she gets into Aunt, Ruth apart- Aunt Ruth's apartment. And that giving of the key is kind of, I think, that first setting in of reality. And I think the parallel between the dream and the reality is that the key that she gets, the blue key from the hitman, is the thing that causes her her collapse. That she knows that Rita is now de- or Camilla is now dead, and that right. she is going to you know grieve about it and go and try and cope with it in this you know like we said this this catatonia, this melancholia, this this three week state. And in the dream, it all starts where everything's fine. You no, know, because before that she's she's with the old people. She's you know happy go lucky. Um, she thinks her bags are stolen, but oh, the taxi cab yeah, is yeah. there to just take her away. You know, it's her, it's her, you know, magic carriage to anywhere in Hollywood. And then as soon as she goes into Aunt Ruth's apartment, that is when the decay sets in, that she meets Camilla, Rita, and that's the thing that caused her problems in reality. So I, I like that idea that the giving of the key that we see is that kind of dream psyche representation of the key showing that, you know, she's done something wrong and that it's only downhill from there. Okay. I dig it. Right I dig on. it. Right on. Yeah. So, so yeah, a lot of keys, but yeah, the only... Yeah, and we get the, the OG, the OG Coco kangaroo line <laughs> before that. One of the best lines of the movie. I can't remember it verbatim. I hope you play the clip. Oh, because, yeah. Because, oh my God, when I heard that, I was like, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, she said, said one, one of the old tenants had, like, a champion boxer kangaroo. Yeah. And then she's yeah. like, you should have seen what that did to this courtyard. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, she killed me with that one. You know, there was a man that lived here once that had a prize-fighting kangaroo. Well, you just wouldn't believe what that kangaroo did to this courtyard. She killed, bro. I was done. I so was like, I, I, "That's amazing." I, I was, I'm, that was incredible. I'm glad you picked up on that because I think that's another great hallmark of David Lynch. Is that even though he is this, you know, renowned surrealist director, he is he has this way to be like strangely funny. Like he has this very weird sense of humor that I think is is shown shows up in this movie. It shows up a lot in Twin Peaks, and it's it's definitely in play in his other movies. Um, but it works. I think that line is is an example of it. You know, I think reminds me of that kangaroo shit you said, or the deer shit you said from oh, the other movie. Sure, sure. I think What's there's with him? kangaroo or the Australian deer, bro. He's got a thing with these <laughs> creatures. I think that there's a uh, there's a a few like David Lynch humor moments in this movie. And a lot of them are like you, you realize it's kind of one of those things that they're funny in such a way that you don't really laugh, but you kind of think about them. I think in this movie there is a laugh out loud scene when the like the the huge dude, the we don't know who he works for, but he's that oh, big dude. Yeah. He goes to the director's house and he's like, Adam Kesher, Adam Kesher. <laughs> and the woman just is like Adam starts here? jumping on him and she's like, get out. And Billy Ray Cyrus, who's 
the guy who who the oh wife is cheating on Adam Kesher with is Billy Ray Cyrus. So, uh, you know, of course, Achy Breaky Heart, probably more famous to these days. The kids know him as Old Miley Cyrus's Road. father. Um, and, and Old Town Road, bro. Come on. Sh- sure. Shout out Lil Nas X. And so, and so <laughs> she's jumping on him, and he just, like, throws her away. And the guy comes out. He's like, I don't think you heard her. She asked you to leave. And he just knocks Billy Ray Cyrus out. And he straightens yeah. himself, and he goes, Adam Kesher. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> Adam Kesher. Adam Kesher. Yeah, right. Get lost. This is Adam Kesher's house. Get out now! Get out! Adam Kesher! Get out of here! He's never coming back! Ever! You don't understand English. She said leave. Here's a door! Adam Kesher. Oh, that was great. so good. Well, and that comes after the other hilarious scene where Adam Kesher walks in on his wife cheating, yes. and she's just like, "What the hell are you even doing home right now?" She's got no sense of guilt for the fact that she's cheating on him. Yeah, and Which, even Billy Ray Cyrus, it, he says the line. He like looks at him. He goes, "You should just pretend you never saw this. It's gonna turn out better that way." <laughs> Right. Well, and there's so much else going. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of other stuff going on there too. Like, well, again, it's hilarious. He goes and he pours paint in her jewelry box, and she jumps on him. <laughs> and then Billy Ray Cyrus just knocks him. Yeah. He just rocks him, drags him out. Like, and Adam Kesher's response to the whole thing is so nonchalant. It's great. Oh yeah, I think probably my favorite performance in this movie is Justin Thoreau as Adam Kesher because oh my God. the way that he – from his first scene when he's in the boardroom and, you know, all, like all the ex- – like the, the executives and then like the two like brothers that come in and they're like, this is yeah. the girl. Like he's he's just has no idea what's going on and the way he delivers that line where he's like, he's like, what's the photo for? And they ignore him and he goes, what is the photo for? And he's like <laughs> really in these like this, – this way that he has to like just get in his face and then I love for – Pretty much the rest of the movie, until he's, like, auditioning the actors, when he finds his wife cheating up through, like, the cowboy scene, he's just covered in paint the whole time. Yeah, like, yeah. He's just walking around covered in, like, all black clothing oh but God. pink paint. <laughs> yeah, and he's so good. I love Justin Thoreau. I love The Leftovers, and I think he was incredible in that as well. Oh, sure. I have to mention, uh, we've seen him before on Cinemodities. He is the... Uh, uh, the bad guy, uh, Seamus O'Grady, I think. In Charlie's Angels 2, Full Throttle. He's great in that. Like, he's doing a, an over-the-top Irish accent the whole movie. It's awesome. <laughs> and um, so the other thing about his reaction to the cheating can be tied back to real life where... After he gets divorced, he's bragging about, you know, what he got out of the divorce and how it worked out for him. Yep. So the fact that he's not overly emotional in that scene, I think, is reflected by the fact that afterwards, you know, her experience, Diane's experience with him and his divorce is him just, you know, not really caring and it being a positive one for him. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also, I've I've always taken that as, um, you know, in, in reality, as we're calling it. Uh, he is the one that that Diane sees has stolen Camilla away from her, 
Yeah. And then in Diane's fantasy, he gets cheated on and he gets his movie shut down. And so she's kind oh, of rationalizing it as like, yeah. like I want I want these bad things to happen to him. Right. Oh, yeah. He's yeah, he's great. <laughs> and he doesn't even get a choice over his lead actress. Yes. Oh, yeah. That that's another great scene when he's auditioning and. You know, he has to say to the other actress where he's like, they're not going to let me cast this thing until I see everybody. And she's like, I'm the one who's going to play this part. And then he realizes that Camilla Rhodes is up next and he's just like the dread sets in where he's like, oh, this is the girl. Yeah, man. And that scene with him in the boardroom when homie spits out the espresso. (laughs) Holy shit. Was that good? That is some like just prime david lynch like setting up the most mundane scene just people in a boardroom what's gonna happen a photo is gonna get passed and then an espresso is gonna get delivered it was highly recommended yes yes and so the dude that spits out the espresso that is uh angelo Badalamenti, who like i said is the other half of thought gang but is also a real life composer and he has done music for i would say most of david lynch's stuff he does the music for twin peaks um i think he did the music for this movie he did the music for um i pretty much i think you know movies three through seven of david lynch um they're like good friends and it's great to see him actually give him a role because he's awesome he doesn't do anything except he whispers like he can't like say anything out loud. he's like this is this is the girl and there's even that great scene where the waiters like is, will that be all, sir? And he's just like – he says something that nobody can make out. And he's like, excuse me? And he's like, napkin. And he's like, oh, a napkin. And it's just like, what is with this dude? Juxtapose great to the other Castigliano brother who screams at a certain point. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember what he blurted out. I couldn't make it out. Oh, it's, it's a help me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like he's eyeing Justin Thoreau who's eyeing him back because he doesn't want any – control taken away from his movie and then all this like nonsense with the expressos going on he's like he's just like screams he's like help me (laughs) like he just wants out of there oh it's awesome (laughs) brothers let me introduce you around oh please uh let's take a seat this is mr darby whom you know and this is the director adam kesher and his uh, manager robert smith Very pretty. Mm. 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 May I offer you gentlemen anything? Espresso. Nothing. Uh, what's the photo for? One espresso. No, that's it. I think you're going to enjoy your espresso this time. I've done quite a bit of research, knowing how hard you are to please. This one comes highly recommended. What's the photo for? It's a recommendation. A recommendation to you, Adam. It's not a recommendation. This is the girl. What girl? For what? What is this, Ray? Uh, We'd be happy to put her on the list for considerations. 
you'd be pleased to know that there's quite a bit of interest in this role. Interest? Hmm. There's six of the top actresses that want this thing. This is the girl. Right, take care of this. Hold on. Hold on, Adam. Hold on? There's no way! There's no way! Is that all, sir? Sorry. That was a highly recommended. That is considered one of the finest espressos in the Wait world. Minute, what sir? is going on here? There is no way that girl is in my mouth. This is the girl. Hey, that girl is not in my film. It's not longer your film. This is the girl. Yeah, another example of, like, grade-A David Lynch humor where, you know, the guy spits out this espresso in this, like, very ungraceful way, and then the people are like, like you said, that came highly, uh, highly suggested. Like, that that's was one of highly the finest, recommended. finest espressos <laughs> in the world. <laughs> and he doesn't even respond. All he does is spit it out. Yep, and then, and then everybody's, angry, everybody's yelling, and it cuts back to Angelo Badalamenti. He's like, this is the girl. <laughs> This is the girl. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's 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 such a good. You know, you take that. I know when we discussed um, the straight. We done the straight story on this podcast, and we discussed. It's like only David Lynch can take some things so mundane and make them like intriguing scenes. And like I said, it's just a boardroom where just a picture has to get passed, and there's nothing going on there. But he makes it so like tense and awkward that you just can't look away from it. It's like there's a scene in the straight story, like before Alvin leaves on his tractor. He wants to, like, buy a grabber, like, you know, something he can, like, reach and grab things with. And he, like, wants a grabber from the store owner. And the store owner's like, oh, Alvin, that's my favorite grabber. And it's like you feel so much emotion for this old man and his grabber. And it's like only David Lynch can take this nonsense and make you feel something from it. Okay, what what else did you have in your notes? I know there's there's got to be more, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we there's took a, lot of... a little de- a little detour from the uh, the an- analysis of this movie, but we I knew it was going to come up. We had to talk about Justin Thoreau and and the oh, the yeah. craziness that he is. He's great in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of heavy stuff. 
I want to get on another minor point because you know I like to do that. <laughs> After we see the bush invisibility take place, I like this as a new theme. We this is gonna be bush invisibility. <laughs> I gotta go back in like the last two years of cinematics and see where we missed bush invisibility. <laughs> Dude, I'm sure it's been present. So after that, all right, I want to talk about the scene where Rita proceeds to run into Aunt Ruth's apartment. Aunt Ruth sees her on her way into the cab, and somehow Rita gets in. Mm, okay. A, what does Aunt Ruth think when she's seeing her? And we're going to have to talk about Aunt Ruth because I'm definitely missing something. A, why does Aunt Ruth not give a fuck when she sees her? It seemed like she thought she was just running away. Meh, just some random damsel in distress running, whatever. Hollywood these days, am I right? <laughs> but then how does Rita get in? She's just in there, which could be chalked up to the fact that it's a dream where sometimes in dreams you just end up in places, you know? That is a good question, and that is something that I've definitely thought of before. Um, I, in to, my, to myself, I've kind of rationalized it as, you know, when we get the shot of Rita running, it's, it's more of for the audience rather than Aunt Ruth seeing it. But I do agree with you that the, the way the eye line is played of Aunt Ruth in the previous shot, that it does... It definitely seems to imply that she sees her. I, I've always kind of been like, you know, it is, like you said, a minor detail. And, of course, you know, we could chalk it up to it's this dream, this fantasy, but I definitely don't want to do that. Something that I have have read, and this, um, I really enjoy this kind of idea, is that jumping ahead to after Club Silencio and they have the blue box, they go back to the apartment and Rita opens the blue box and we get the great shot. I love that visual where she opens it, the camera goes into the blackness of the blue box, and then we get the shot where the blue box just falls onto the ground. Yeah, that was really good. Immediately after that, it the camera is still in that bedroom, and it shows Aunt Ruth come in to the bedroom and kind of look around and then leave. So, yeah, what the hell was up with that? So I have read, and I, I like I said, I, I love this idea. I have read someone's theory is that the the start of the fantasy is Aunt Ruth leaving to some extent. Leaving not really in, of course, in the fantasy she's going, you know, to up to Canada, I think she says. Um, in but in reality, reality she's, dead. she's dead. And so I'm taking that as the form of leaving. And so when Aunt Ruth leaves, that's kind of the start of the fantasy or where this whole journey starts to take place, at least for Diane. And so in the, in the beginning of the movie, when we see uh, Aunt Ruth, Ruth, you know, taking her suitcase and stuff out back to the, um, uh, the, the, the taxi cab and whatnot, getting ready to leave, you know, let's say that she did see Rita running, and Aunt Ruth goes back into the apartment to kind of see, you know, maybe take a last look to see if she's left anything, maybe see if, you know, if, if someone did go into the apartment, do a quick check, and um, that type of thing. The theory that I read is that when the blue box is opened and it falls to the ground, that is basically the the end of the fantasy, and right. and it's almost like a a loop or a, a Mobius strip, if you will. That when when the two characters Betty and Rita disappear and the blue box falls to the ground and disappears, it kind of loops back to when Aunt Ruth was leaving the apartment, and that's her going back in and checking to see if anything's there, and then finally leaving. So it's kind of the theory is that the the fantasy is this big loop, is that you know. When, when Aunt Ruth left the apartment and Rita runs in, it's at the same time that Betty uh, that uh, yeah Betty and Rita are opening the box and leaving the fantasy. 
Nah, bro. I find that very interesting. I don't know if uh, if I believe it completely. I like that idea as like that a, doesn't make a, a whole lot of a sense. nugget of this movie. Well, I don't know. I'm not satisfied, and I think it it's something more because David Lynch is all about where is Aunt Ruth, right? That was one of his notes. Sure, sure. Well, as far as I know, Aunt Ruth left to go to Canada, where Diane's from. Mm-hmm. In reality, she's just dead. Yep. And the only other scene, to my knowledge, you tell me if I'm wrong, was that, where they drop the box and she's just kind of like, hmm. Like, almost as if she noticed the dropping, is the way I took it. Like, she she kind of, like, sensed something was up, to be honest. That was the vibe I got. Yeah, yeah, definitely, like, heard a noise, was checking on something, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, those the only, the only other time she's mentioned is um, when she's on the phone with uh, Betty. Why would that have so much significance that David Lynch would make it one of his ten? That's a, oh, yeah, right. But she's on the phone, and she was on the phone with Coco, too, saying, like, you know, oh, get that person out of here, blah, blah, blah. She put she put some pressure on there. Yes. And, and that no, that that is a good question. That is that is one of the things that, you know, I've I've always, like I said before, you know, had some concern with. It's it's strange. You know, it's uh, it, I think it's something that, you know, even there's there's so many ideas about that. You know, we don't have that that way that that one. Like I said before, the we fit one corner in the other corner pops up. And I think that's one of the corners that just keeps popping up because you're right. It is one of his his questions or clues. Where is Aunt Ruth? And it's it's just very, very strange and out of place, at least with the other clues and the ways that they more greatly relate to this movie. When you think of this movie and then you think of Aunt Ruth, it's kind of like that's such a minor part. You know, yeah. why is that on that list? I'm with you. Even her putting the pressure on, like, get her out of there, you know. I guess maybe it makes uh, uh, Diane, Betty, you know, seriously think like, oh, but I don't want her to leave and start to really think about who – Rita is in some mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. but it didn't really feel like Aunt Ruth was much of a catalyst. It's more of just a gnat, you know, just yeah. like nagging, you know, didn't really feel like that spurred on any action at all. Yes, yes. And I, I do, um, I have to mention, uh, I don't think this is like a grand clue to the movie or anything, um, but there, there is a euphemism in the movie business uh, called, uh, they, they will say that people are acting in Canada as a euphemism for being dead. <laughs> oh really so, yeah i think i don't I, I don't i don't think that's a clue to the ex- like explaining the majority of this movie i think that's just david or lynch Canadian knowing actors i i think that's knowing that like uh that saying in hollywood and david lynch is just poking fun because aunt ruth is dead in reality and in the dream she yeah. goes and acts in canada but i think that i always thought that was a little clever where it's like oh they're acting in canada which means they're dead and then in reality she is dead interesting all right that was the one of the things that just just kind of didn't make a whole lot of sense Sure. So, sure. what I really want to talk about is the cowboy dude. <laughs> he had one of the best quotes, the best you know non comedic quote. I think, you know, he had one of them with his whole. Uh, oh gosh, I'll butcher it. What his was attitude it? speech. Yeah, yeah. A, a, a man's the the series, the situations of a man's uh, life is yes. largely determined by his attitude. Would you say that's true? <laughs> Would you say that's true? You're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart aleck. Yeah. I want you to really think. I want to thank you for coming all the way up here to see me from that nice hotel downtown. No problem. It's on your mind. Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. 
Man's attitude, man's attitude goes some ways the way his life will be. Is that something you might agree with? Sure. Now, did you answer because that's what you thought I wanted to hear? Or did you think about what I said and answer because you truly believe that to be right? I agree with what you said, truly. What'd I say? That a man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. So since you agree, you must be a person who does not care about the good life. How's that? We'll stop for a little second and think about it. Can you do that for me? <laughs> okay. I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart aleck. Can you try that for me? Yeah, that's a, that's a, I like that scene and that's another thing where it's just like, oh God, like I, like, I, I'm sure like everyone's had experience with those people where, you know, it's kind of like, um, there, there's some people that think that respect and, and having a good attitude is just like bowing down to them and doing exactly what they say and conforming to how they believe people should act. And that's what I always get <laughs> from that scene where the cowboy is just like, you know, he even says he has the thing. He's like, how many riders, how many drivers does a buggy have? Well, one. And he's like, well, I'm driving this buggy. And if you, if you just do everything I say, maybe you can join me with you. And he's like, and that's respect. And it's like, no, it's like, no, that, that's not what respect is. But you clearly think that's what that means. <laughs> Yeah, you're clearly just fucking trying to force me into doing some shit by threatening me with my bank account and my movie. Like, yes. let's not, you know, let's not play games with what's actually going on here, buddy. So the the cowboy is very interesting, of course, because he has the 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 great, you know, strange line of, if you see me one more time after this, you did good, but if you see me two more times, you've done bad. Yeah. And and of course. Uh, Justin Thoreau never sees him again in in the movie, at least that we see. But we, the audience, see him two more times. He wakes up Diane from her fantasy when he says, "Hey, pretty girl, time to wake up." Okay, yeah. And, and what then was he up with that? and then he walks by in the background at the dinner party. Yeah, and what was up with that? So, What's up with this guy, bro? So the the is I, he the pirate? I think he's you know. <laughs> In Under the Silver Lake? I think he's the pirate, bro. If you see the pirate an odd number of times, you've done good. If you see the pirate an even number of times, you you go to – you don't get enlightenment. (laughs) I don't mean that literally. I mean is he like the the Mulholland Drive analog of the pirate? I I definitely think so to some extent because I I think that, you know, once you – I think that's one of the most surface level things for an audience is that, you know, you that line is of the one and two times is so clearly pronounced that then we as the audience see him two more times. It it just immediately gives the feeling to the viewer of like, well, what did I do wrong? You know, like the movie told me that if I see this cowboy two two more times, I've done a bad thing or I haven't done well. And then yeah. I see him two more times. So it's like this this sense of uneasiness that it sets into the viewer where it's like, did I do bad? Like, what did I miss something? And I I don't really know what that means. Of course, you know, like we were saying before, this, you this think movie. It's just some foreboding shit. I think so. But the thing that really gets me is that, you know, of all the characters that are in her fantasy, 
they do to some extent play a role in reality. Like even the dude who spits out the espresso, he's at the dinner party and like bet and Diane and him make eye contact when she's drinking coffee. And so he's clearly someone in the movie business that she's, you know, put in this, these, these, uh, you know, Hollywood behind the scenes machinations and why she's not getting these parts is at least how she's rationalizing it. She never interacts with the cowboy. The cowboy is just someone in the background, you know? So he is one of the things that I kind of think maybe there's some crossover there. Maybe there is this kind of, you know, bleeding in of reality and fantasy as Diane starts to, you know, slowly slip away and all these bad things are happening to her. But I'm, I'm with you. I have no idea that that cowboy is, is like you said, he's the pirate. He's this mystery. He's this yeah. character that we don't really know what it means when we see him. Yeah. So, I mean, can we agree that he didn't really tell her to wake up? That was still kind of part of the dream. I I think so. And um, I also have definitely read in some of the um, the sexual abuse stories is that it's part of the fantasy and Diane reliving that part where if she was abused by an older man, like coming into her bedroom or something, that that same guy did it where he's like, like get up and face this traumatic experience. Mm. So get up and kill yourself. <laughs> that's what the cowboys always tell me. <laughs> but yeah, I I think that's one of those David Lynch touches where it's like there there's it's so strange and so interpretable where it's just like you you know something's there and you can't really place it down. It's another one of those dreamlike qualities of this movie as a whole, not just the actual dream portion. Yeah. Word. Yeah, the cowboys great. Okay, what else, what else you got? What else did you highlight on there? <laughs> couple comments okay. Rita had some fat stacks okay oh yeah and I think that that was Diane just kind of rationalizing is that's why she was in the car getting shot at in the first place it's not because of her it's because she's somehow involved with this Hollywood cult people yeah yeah because it is the um the same that purse is uh the same one that um uh Diane gives the money to the hitman in at the and in, in reality and, oh. and I've definitely seen that as, like, well, one, you know, she's grieving about this hit that she uh, got, had carried out on Camilla. And so at the start of her fantasy, Camilla survives the hit and she has the money. And so it's kind of like she's – Diane and her psyche is rectifying this whole thing that she's done where Camilla's now alive or the innocent portion of her, the good portion of her, and she has this money. Um, but, yeah, I, I definitely think, she's you know – fat stacks, Oh, yeah. Bro. In in the rationalization of the, the dream is that, yes, she has this movie from uh, – this money from something in this this Hollywood industry type of thing. Yeah, but they never really showed her as being an actress. Yeah. And I, I also – I was always kind of concerned where it's like – they never, or at least we don't see them, like, spend that money. I mean, maybe they do because, you know, they go out to the diner and stuff like that. But I, I think I've always been like, you know, why don't they just, like, you know, use that for something? Maybe, you're not man all of it. You know, they don't go on, a, like, a shopping spree because that's exactly what this movie needs, a shopping montage with these two oh, women, right? Oh, God. <laughs> but, but it's like I, there, there's never a scene where they just, like, take, uh, like, one of the $100 bills and use it on something or anything like that. It's, it's always just, like, they have to hide it away. Which yeah. makes sense in the rationalization because the real Diane knows that that you know the the money and and the blue key oh. that's in there is like a remin is is showing or is a, a relic of this traumatic experience the bad thing right. she's done so she has to hide it away, but yeah. it's kind of like before you know what's really going on it's kind of like why the fuck aren't they spending that money? <laughs> no, I thought it was like well this is dirty money like let's let's hide this till we figure out what's actually going on. That okay, so I think we're we're finding a, a difference between us 
if Justin and I are in a car accident and we lose our memory, we get amnesia and we find a bunch of money, I'm going to spend it with reckless abandon and Justin's <laughs> going to be like, maybe I should figure out what this is from first. <laughs> Exactly. I'm gonna go like I'm gonna go to like a like a car dealership and just like dump it on a desk and be like I'm buying a car at sticker price. Here's my cash. <laughs> oh, I'm not man. gonna negotiate or anything. Just take it. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's talk about this hitman dude. Oh yes, uh, he's Jacob from Lost. You ever see uh, Lost? I don't think so. No, I never fucked with Lost. He, uh, but he's he's like the protector of the island. He is the embodiment of of good. And he is nothing like that in this movie. He is, no. he is a bumbling hitman, at least in the fantasy. And Another, that was hilarious when he kills the three people. That was exactly what I was about to say. Another great David Lynch comedy moment where he kills the dude as he's making it look like a suicide, accidentally shoots the woman next door who doesn't yeah. even know she's been shot. She's like, something bit me real bad. <laughs> And then he has Yo, to kill the janitor. Yo, she almost wounds his ass. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's, she's knocking him down on the floor like she like <laughs> she's like ready to wrestle him. It seems. And then he kills the janitor, and then he oh. shoots the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> I love that scene. <laughs> Do you think that was her just saying like, oh, oh maybe he's a bad hitman and it's, he's not going to pull it off and he's going to fail at his job? Yeah, that that's how I take it. Another way her psyche's rationalizing every step of this thing that she's done. Is that you know this dude is just like a fool? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, he's yeah he's great. That scene is awesome. I love that scene so much. And yeah. the way the way that he acts it is like every time something goes wrong in that hit, he's just like he does that like sigh and he like shrugs his shoulders and he's like like I just imagine him say, like thinking to himself he's like not again and like this happened last week. <laughs> <laughs> so I do I do find it interesting in that scene though. I there's not a lot to go on, but I've always find it very um, interesting that when before like the the hitman actually kills the dude and takes the phone book and like bungles everything else, they are talking about a car crash, which I can only imagine is the car crash from the beginning. Yeah, the detectives are talking about it. Not a whole lot comes from all that. Yeah, and so I I've never I've read some stuff where it's like the 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 phone book that the guy has that the hitman kills. He somehow, like, got it because of the car accident, but it's all very loose. It's it's not really fleshed out. And, you know, of course, it seems like there is something there to the phone book because they, they describe it as, in that scene, you know, like, the history of the world in phone numbers or something like that. And then oh, in, yeah. in reality, when, when they're at Winky's Diner and Diane is, you know, hiring him for the hit, he has the phone book. So it's it's clearly in her psychic some psyche some some way but I, I've just that's never... the dream shit is like these little things that happen. Yes. Get you know, that's what happens in dreams. You see something and then it, it comes into your dream in just the most random way. Like when she was making the hit and she saw the dude behind the counter and then she saw him in her dream and he was talking about a dream and then being scared at a guy behind a counter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That was all of that just fear in this moment and this just you know, trouble dealing with that hit just creeping into her dream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's all those layers are awesome. And you mentioned the detectives who only show up at the beginning. But, of yeah. course, the, uh, the detective on the left in the one scene we get is none other than Robert Forster, yeah. one of my favorite actors. But, of course, we know him on Cinemodities as the coach of the knights from Like Mike. Oh, shit. Yeah, he has one scene in this movie. <laughs> 
Dude, he's the coach? Yeah, yeah, yep. I don't – coach – I can't remember his name from, like, my coach whatever. But, um, yep, the actor's Robert Forster, and he's the, the detective on the left in Mulholland Drive. Damn. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, look at that. We got a, we got an Under the Silver Lake connection. We got a Like Mike connection. Who would have thought? <laughs> Crazy. It's a small Hollywood dude. <laughs> yes. And also, Robert Forster is a great actor. Um, so I'm glad that he, sh- I don't, oh, he shows up in, um, he's in Twin Peaks, the third season of Twin Peaks. Uh, he's a, a big character. Uh, Coach Wagner in Like Mike is his name. Okay. But yes, I had to, I had to get that in there. Um, that we have a Like Mike connection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no magic man. sneakers though. While we're on characters, what's up with the, the bum dude? What's mm. going on with this guy? So... That's a good There's question. a lot of interesting theories about him. Oh, yes. And I, I think I subscribe to the one where, just as we were talking before about how um, in Diane's psyche, in her, in her coping mechanism, her dream, her fantasy, she's split the good and bad parts of Camilla. So there's the innocent one who's Rita, and then there's Camilla who's, you know, getting the parts because of the Hollywood machine. I, I like the thought that, you know, this, this bum the the man behind the diner the bum behind the diner whatever it's the it's what Diane has done to split herself because it well, she's Betty in the fantasy who's this you know this fresh face you know she hasn't been tainted by the Hollywood machine she's just gotten to L A and she's doing really well in these auditions and stuff and you know making the connections but she's separated that evil part of her the the part that you know has had these traumatic experiences and would decide to take out a hit on Camilla to you know effectively kill another person she split that away from her and just hidden it in a dumpster behind a diner you know she she's pushed it as far away as she oh. thinks she can find in her rationalization of what she's done is that she's just made it this oh. this homeless person this bum that's just you know no one would pay attention to and is literally hidden away and then of course you know we get that dude Patrick Fischler describing it where he's like I never want to see it again it's still creeping in and it's just kind of creeping in in this very, very minute way. I think I like he's that the one who interpretation. Saw her. That's at her, so good. At her evilest point when she's actually hiring the hitman. Yeah, exactly. Right. And now he's traumatized because he saw that. I That was a legit jump scare when he went to the <laughs> – Yes. And I jumped. I, I've said it before on this podcast. I'm not the biggest fan of jump scares. But if a jump scare is earned, it is – purposeful because i'm sure i don't know if you've seen them but like modern horror movies these days maybe not these days but you know what do you got you got like your conjurings from a little earlier you had like your uh, your paranormal activities and all these kind of modern horror movies they're just jump scares like they yeah. are 90 percent jump scares and they suck because they're, they're they don't make any sense like just every single time something jumps out there's the same musical sting and people are just yeah. conditioned to feel scared by it. And this is a movie that does a jump scare, and it is earned because the dude is just – you don't know that it's a dream. Patrick Fischler is just like, I wanted to come here because I had this dream, and it terrifies me, and I never want to see this dude's face, and it creeps me out. And his his guy he's with, his partner, we don't even know what capacity they're in, he's like, well, let's go. Let's let's go check it out. Let's see what it is. He's like you know, clearly not <laughs> believing him. He's like, there's not going to be nothing there. You know, you're going to – you're going to see nobody, and you're going to kind of be fine with it. And then we get the slow walk out of the diner. We get the slow walk to the, you know, past the payphone, behind the diner. 
he Patrick Fischler kind of doubles back, and the guy pushes him for it, and you don't really know what's going to happen. And then, boom, it comes out. And it is earned. It is a jump scare that is earned in a movie, and I love seeing that. And it's hilarious the way he comes out. It's honestly comical. Just the way he like slides he just, out and slides yeah, back slides behind the out. wall. <laughs> yep. Like it's ridiculous. And Patrick Fischler just like collapses. <laughs> yeah. Man. And the music's so well done. It's shot really well, that scene. That would be legitimately scary. Like, can you imagine like being like in reality being in his shoes and like you know, like going to see if there's anything back there and then it actually is there? Like that I'd would be freak out, bro. Horrifying. I would freak out. Oh, yeah. I I think that is a genuinely scary part of this movie. I think the other thing that scares me, like, sincerely scares me, because I I think we've had the conversation years ago where, like, all these spooky movies these days, like Paranormal Activity, there's a ghost. Like, like, uh, the Insidious, there's these demons and possession. Like, none of that really scares me. Like, it's creepy, but I'm never, like, unnerved by it. The scene when they return from Club Silencio... And they're like, we have the box, we have the key, we gotta go open it. And Betty and Rita go into the bedroom, and Betty's right there. It zooms in on Rita getting the purse down from the closet, and then Betty's gone? That is horrifying to me. That scares me to no end. Like, could you imagine if, like, the two of us went into a room together, and then, like, you turned away for a minute, and I was just gone? Like, (laughs) that is terrifying! (laughs) Yeah, no, that would be that would be scary, and I, that was the first thing that threw me off. It's just like, well, where the hell did she go? What the hell is going on? You <laughs> yes, know? Yes. Oh my god, that that like that is that is a because that's I think that's the what's truly scary is not like things or or events, it's ideas and the idea of someone just disappearing at a, at like just out of nowhere at an in, like an inconsequential time is so scary to me. Oh god, that gets me every time. It's a pretty consequential time. Oh, in the yeah, movie, yes, but you. I'm just think, I'm just thinking like in my life I'm just like oh, if anybody just disappeared, oh. I would be like, "Oh my god." Like <laughs> I would go into a 3-week uh, coping mechanism state and and <laughs> rationalize everything that has happened and make it all all well and good. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. No, yeah, I'd freak out, bro. Yeah, I think, the the, you know, the bum you'd is... go through the stages of grief. You'd be like, "Well, he's just trying to scare me. He's just hiding in the closet, <laughs> in the in the crawl space. <laughs> That's where I yeah. would go if we were hanging out. <laughs> Start with denial. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. But then, oh yeah, it would set in. It'd be like you know th- that has never happened before. Why would that happen? There'd be the little bit of looking around. Am I gonna disappear? Am now I... we're back to the leftovers all of a sudden. <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, it's it's very that's very frightening. And then you know, it's a, this definitely I would say is more of a thriller than a horror movie. But it definitely has those horror elements. Like uh, I would say, Eraserhead is like a genuine horror movie. And then a lot of David Lynch's other stuff isn't really that way. It's more of that thriller and suspense and psychological stuff. But he still yeah. gets it in there. Yeah. You know, he still finds way to make me uncomfortable. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so that was the bum. I li- what do you think? You like that interpretation? I actually really like that, you nice. know, because he's, he's at the, the Winkles, Winkies. Winkies, yeah. You know, tucked way in the back. She tried to just put it out of her mind. <laughs> Why he's there at the end doesn't make a whole lot of sense, unless he's not really there, and it's more just symbolism. Because at the end, he's got the blue box and all that shit. Yeah, I think it's that symbolism where it's like that, that part of her is like, you know, merging back to her. Because that scene is... Because that scene is when is right before the old people attack her. Because the old people crawl out of the box in the paper bag, 
with yeah. the bomb. And and so I definitely think it's like her kind of, you know, that hallucination coming back into play and her realizing that that part of her has to okay. has to return to her to some extent. And that is also another very creepy visual. Those miniature old people, the way they move, like it's almost like stop-motion animation. Oh, that was so unsettling. Yes, very creepy to look at. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty freaked out. And they, they crawl under the door. It's just like, what? Why am I seeing this? I don't want to see this. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we keep going with the heavy stuff, I really liked the opening scene. At the... first, I was like, this is dumb and this is boring. And then I was like, this is actually really thematic. The uh, the jitterbug? The, the, the dance jitterbug scene? and then the watching the car for so long. Oh, sure, with the opening credits. And between those two. There weren't even credits for a lot of it. There's just you legit oh, watching this car. And sure. I think it's just trying to lock you into that mind state. Yep. And, and of course, going back to uh, David Lynch's first clue. He says, pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. At least two clues yes. are revealed before the credits. And of which course, I did not. it starts with the, the jitterbug dance scene, which is great. I, I like that a lot, too. And every time... That's, yeah, what's up with that? That's Diane, you know, and her first claim to fame. Yeah, that, I think that's, that's what that is, where it's just kind of like the, the start of her whole story to Hollywood is that she wins that competition. Um Every time I uh, – since I saw this before, um, th- that intro with the people dancing is very similar to um, the music video for Animal Collective's My Girls. There's a lot of, like, silhouettes dancing, and I always think of Mulholland oh, cool. Drive when I watch that music video, um, <laughs> even though that's a very happy, upbeat song. But uh, after the, the dance scene, you know, and we see, like, the, the overexposure of, of Betty and with the old people, and she's very happy, we do get that cut to – the camera just kind of tracking up the bed, and it ends on the pillow. And it's kind of like that slight, subtle hint where it's like, okay, she's going into this dream state now. Oh. And it's, it's, very, it's very, you know, a slight touch. And it's one of those things where it's like, you're, you're not going to understand at the beginning because it seems so out of place where you're just like, okay, why am I seeing, like, a camera close up on bed sheets, you know, slightly, slowly track up to a pillow and then it kind of fades out into the car and into the into the um, the credits, and then you're kind of along for the ride, and you you forget about it an hour fifty minutes later. It's one of those things when you rewatch it, you're like, oh, they're showing us Diane's bed. They're almost showing us her lay, laying down on that bed, going into this state. Yeah, I got big cowboy vibes when you said going along for the ride. Oh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> Get along, little doggy. Because <laughs> I took it as. You know, kind of the come down from a big party, right? Like a big event, the jitterbug, mm. and now, you know, she's in the car driving away, going in completely cold. That's kind of what I took it as. It's okay. like, all right, we had this good time, and now we're sort of coming down from it and coming back to reality. You know, fun's over, time to call it a night type deal. Oh, yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. That's understandable. That was, that was my first impression. And I thought it was really good because she's just sort of in the car kind of – not really having a good time, just seemed kind of bored or mm-hmm. just over it. And then, you know, the gun, the whole thing happens, the whole series of events. But the vibe I got was just, all right, night's over, time to go home. Not, I'm going out, I'm going out to have a good time, I'm going somewhere. Yes. Right on. Yeah, I like that. So that was good stuff. I, I liked, I thought that was a good opening scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's, he sets the stage very well. 
So I, I, uh, it's probably going to overlap with one of yours, but uh, probably, not probably, definitely, my favorite scene in the film is the Club Silencio. No, I, banda, there is no (laughs) band. Because when, of course, you know, I I started this episode talking about how, you know, I wanted to push Justin the deep end, get another David Lynch film in here. But of course, this is our uh, chewed up and spit out series. And we've talked a little bit about that. I think this is another, you know, kind of under the silver lake where it's not the main focus of the movie, or at least this discussion, but it is a part of it. I love the Club Silencio scene as a representation or an explanation of Hollywood, of filmmaking, of, of, you know, putting things out for other people. Because the whole point of that is the guy at the beginning is like, everything is an illusion. Like, you, you will see people do things, but that does not mean they are actually doing them. And we get the great stuff where, like, the trumpet player acts like he's playing the trumpet and stops and you still hear it. Rebecca Del Rio, you know, collapses during her song and the music is still playing. And I, I love that just as the idea of it's like, well, well, you know, that's what these things are. You know, that's what these created things in Hollywood are. They're all facades. You know, they're all kind of dreams in some extent and, and stories. Like, you always have to remember, every time you watch a movie or a TV show, no matter how much you love it, no matter how much you're engrossed and, and into that movie... There is someone just on the other side of those people with a shitload of equipment just watching them, just pointing a camera at them. It's the most fake thing you could ever imagine, but we are able to just create this illusion that it is not fake. It's this, it's this experience. And I love that whole scene just reminding us of that idea because it's just like, you know, hey, it's most of the time, you know, in movies— they'll all the time there's loop groups there's overdubbing like most like movies will get filmed and then they'll have the actors come back in record all their dialogue and that's the dialogue they use in the movie it's not just like someone gets there and says stuff and then that's what's in the movie every piece of it is controlled and manipulated it's all an illusion and david lynch i think is subtly you know telling us about this dream world because that's really when you know diane's dream falls apart but at the same time he has this kind of this vicious message to say about Hollywood and storytelling that it is all this just illusion and we might think it's one thing but we always have to remember and be reminded that it isn't I love that yeah even watching her sing you know I found myself thinking well she's got to be really singing right how could she look like that if she wasn't really singing and it's like it's a movie she doesn't (laughs) have to really be doing anything yeah yep and it is they're just giving the impression that she's singing (laughs) Yeah, and she, I love the, uh, so the song she's singing is the, uh, of course, a, a Spanish language version of uh, Crying by Roy Orbison, and it is awesome. I love that song in this movie. I thought that was a great scene. It also strongly resembled a lot of dream states where Diane started seizing, you know, mm-hmm. and having this big emotional response to just this reality, this lifting of the curtains, you know, like dr- sleep paralysis where people feel like they're shaking when they're coming out of a sleep when they're coming out of their sleep yes and it's played as like um you know the the guy says it's all an illusion for like the last time and the the eyeline and the shots make it seem like he's looking directly at diane and she starts to shake and of course once that happens and even that whole scene when he's describing the illusion stuff it's just we're getting these flashes of blue light going back to that that traumatic experience you know coming back into her fantasy it's almost like that this um you know, if we have the world of reality and the world of her fantasy, Club Silencio is kind of like the the 
limbo between them. Mm. Yeah, where her conscious mind is like, you know this isn't real, this is just a dream. Yes, and I think that that's why I, you know, I, I, I think one of the things you texted me that night when you watched it was, well, where does she get the blue box from? And that's, that's because it, they're in like this, this limbo, this waiting room almost between the dream world and the, and the reality where the reality can seep in and reality doesn't just seep in with someone saying, hey, you're in a dream. It seeps in in this manifestation of the blue box that this key can be used to open and, you know, destroy this fantasy. Yeah, and another thing I found really interesting that reminded me of my dreams, I don't know if you have this, but have you ever noticed like you're in a dream and stuff doesn't start to seem right, and then you start to think about it too much in your dream, and that's when I start to wake up. Do you have that at all? Mm, Oh, yeah, definitely. Like when things get just weird enough where you're like, hold on, now I'm starting to question things. Right, and then you question it a bit too much, and then you wake up, and you're like, oh, okay. You know? That yeah. that happens to me a lot in my dreams, and that's really, like, the vibe I get from this whole movie of, okay, we're going to start to question Rita. Where'd Rita come from? You know, like, what do you mean you don't have a name? Like, let's start to think about it, and the more she thinks about it, the more just reality hits. Yeah. Like more that she digs you know, in and wants to play detective and, and learns more, yep. Right. She sees, you know, herself being dead, you know, her future, right? Like the more she she tries to uncover the truth, mm-hmm. the more it's just she gets hit with reality. She can't stay in the fantasy because the truth is you're fucking dreaming and you're losing it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's it's great. Yeah, that I, I think I told you the story. One of the last times we were hanging out was I had that dream where I was like, clipping like i was literally like half in a wall yeah, that yeah. was when i was like okay this is a dream when i was like <laughs> stuck in a wall and i woke up and i was like <laughs> yeah this that definitely was not real that was i could tell that was a dream <laughs> yeah. yeah i had that same experience you start to just question wait what the hell is going on and then that's when you wake up yes yeah for the audience that i did have that dream it was very strange <laughs> sounds like a good time I was stuck in a wall <laughs> man yeah that was a really powerful scene Oh yeah, it's, it's all the and then of course I think is another great example of the the sound design and the sound engineering is that you know there's so much noise when there needs to be and then there's just that her singing and that's all you're focused on and and it just paints this great picture you know like I said earlier like show don't tell is that we're getting everything we need just from just watching these people reacting and and crying and and I also really like the fact that we get the shot that they go into Club Silencio. And we see other people in the seats, but that's the only time we see them. When they go in, once they sit down, everything is basically either the stage and then cuts back to them, back to the stage, back to them. It's like those other people become inconsequential. Yeah. And watching it for the first time, I'm just like, why are they having this? You know, this is just where you start. Shit really starts to go haywire, but Mm -hmm. you're still somewhat grounded right he's starting to just completely sweep you off your feet yes where you're like all right you know rita wakes up in the middle of the night and starts doing some weird shit and it's like why is she doing this and why does she want to go to a club in the middle of the night and how do they get there right on time like that shit does not make sense yeah and then they're having this incredible powerful reaction to the move to the play which you know in all honesty like is not all that powerful out mm. of context. Sure, you know? sure. It's just a good show. 
but they're just reacting so strongly and you're like it just adds so much to the scene and then she finds the blue box and that's when it really just all hell breaks loose you know pandora's box is open yeah absolutely and i I think that's it's a great scene to a great lead up to that moment where you know like like you said for your first time and i said back in my first time where it's just like hold up what just happened yeah what is going on and yeah why are they reacting this way why are they here what does this all mean it's all very unclear yes exactly and then you hope for clarity but you do not get it you get more confusion (laughs) from there it only gets worse oh yeah yeah that's a good old david lynch uh, Zach has a great story of him watching uh, the Twin Peaks season three finale when it was airing and him just like having watching it on his TV as it was airing and his like clock under the TV. And it, you know, it's an hour long show and it was the finale. And he's just like, OK, you know, there's 15 minutes left. There's 10 minutes left. There's five minutes left. What the hell's going to happen? What's going to happen? And it is a very <laughs> un. I think it's very, you know, kind of uh, canonically or realistically a very unsatisfying ending, but it's also a very perfect ending. But I just love whenever Zach tells that story, he's just like, okay, you know, like there's five minutes left, there's four minutes left. Like, did something happen? Kind of. What year is this? terrible it's amazing twin peaks is amazing all right i've never seen it but that sounds terrible (laughs) you would you would it would be another like you would text me and just destroy my phone and i'd have to wait for it to stop vibrating to be able to unlock it type of deal if you you watched (laughs) twin peaks and got to that ending but it is perfect yeah if you say so buddy (laughs) so speaking of twin peaks i do have to mention this this is going to be great justin you're going to know nothing about this so um uh twin peaks the the whole premise at least the the starts the first episode the premiere starts um where someone finds a dead body washed up on one of the beaches or kind of not a beach like a shore of twin peaks and they call the cops and that's like the whole thing is like who killed laura palmer like that's the big mystery of twin peaks at least the first season and a half and then laura palmer is like a huge character even though she's dead for most of it, like a lot of the town of Twin Peaks revolves around her. Um, and she, she appears in some flashbacks. She appears in the Red Room, which is kind of this mystical limbo type of place. David Lynch has a lot of that motif going on in a lot of his stuff. But she is played by an actress named Sherilyn Fenn, uh, who is a blonde-haired woman. Uh, she's, I think, in, you know, she was in... Twin Peaks, she was young. She played a high school student, but definitely looked older, of course, you know, playing younger. And that was in the early 90s. Uh, she got, uh, you know, older and older, of course. She didn't act in other David Lynch things, I think, after the Twin Peaks movie, which was 94 or 95. And um, uh, so Sherilyn Fenn, if you if you look at her, if you see her, you know, you, you see Laura Palmer. That's who she is. And anybody who's seen Twin Peaks knows exactly what I'm talking about. In that opening 
scene, the intro scene to Club Silencio that I mentioned, where you see other people in the in the seats, as Betty and Rita are walking down the aisle, um, on the right side of them, in seats already, you can see two women. One of them is a blonde-haired woman, and then sitting next to her is a, a dark-haired woman, who look, who are not played by the same actresses. That is very important to note. They are not the same actresses, but they look very, very similar to Laura Palmer and her friend in the show, Donna Hayward. And so there is a, like, David Lynch fan theory that this movie takes place in the same universe oh, as God. Twin Peaks. And it, it does make some sense because Club Silencio being this kind of, you know, no, waiting room limbo, that that's where, you know, Sherilyn Fenn is, Laura Palmer is for um, a good portion of Twin Peaks. So I had to mention that. I, I know Justin has no knowledge of this, of what I'm talking about, but I don't fully like that theory because if that is the case, of course we don't really have a chronological order of David Lynch films if there is some kind of shared universe between multiple of them, all of them, who knows. But that would imply that this Club Silencio is in some way connected to the White Lodge and the Black Lodge, which I don't like. I don't like that. I don't like that idea. That is a very different thing than Club Silencio being specifically for Diane's fantasy, which is, I think, like we said, it's that limbo between her reality and her fantasy. I think that's what it's important for. It's not yeah. this other kind of, you know, room above the gas station as much of the lodges are portrayed. So for any of the Twin Peaks fans out there, Rob does not like the shared universe theory for that reason. Your Do you want to weigh in, theory Justin? has been shot down. <laughs> Do you want to weigh in not having seen Twin Peaks? What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I do actually want to weigh in. Are you going to edit the Wikipedia page? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? I'll, I've been going hard. You're, the whole time you were talking about that, I've just been messing with Wikipedia. <laughs> and edits. your source is, I'm talking to someone on a podcast right now. <laughs> yeah, I back to fan theories. Like, all of those shared universe fan theories are just all loads of crap. Like, every one of them. Okay. Whenever fans like, oh, all this random shit, like Quentin Tarantino, they do it. Oh, it's like, yeah. no, yeah. no, stop it. Relax, buddy. Go, go, or do you go, have go a... for a walk. Do you... you know? <laughs> do you have, a, do you have a, the same feelings, if you know about it, on the Pixar one, that all the Pixar movies take place in the same universe? All the same universe shit is dumb to me, bro. Okay. So are you going to take this Unless it was far... seriously intentional, you know? Okay. Like, come on, I, just... I... just... Just relax with all that universe I shit. think you just answered my question because I was going to ask, are you going to take it as far as saying that you don't think that the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are connected? <laughs> <laughs> that you're no. like, there is no connection between Infinity War and Endgame. <laughs> I refuse to believe it's that. It's all coincidence. <laughs> now, now, that should go on Wikipedia. <laughs> Dude, I'm going to go ham. That needs to be put on the Star Spangled Banner page. Oh, there's a picture of Woody in, in Monsters, Inc., so there's got to be some, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, just stop it. Just <laughs> stop. Like, they just put it in there for fun. It's an Easter egg. Just chill. Just I, stop trying to connect all the universes. I tend to agree. I tend to agree with the idea that it's Easter eggs, you know, especially with um. It's fun. Production companies, studios, stuff like that. And uh, I, that, I I will give you, though, that uh, I do – I think we said it earlier. You know, I do appreciate the amount of thought that some people put into this stuff. I know the Pixar one is like people have worked out like a whole timeline of, of the – like a 
chronology of the Pixar movies and like what characters in certain movies are responsible for cars being come, becoming sentient in cars movies and stuff like that. But I also am a fan of saying if you have that much mental energy to expend on that, put it somewhere else, please. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And that is almost as bad as the last episode of Black Mirror where they force the whole oh. fucking series into one. It's like yeah. this is a goddamn anthology. I what did you, I did do, hate that. That was when I stopped watching Black Mirror. I know there's been episodes since that one, and I just refused to watch them. Because the whole premise of the show was showing us different possibilities for where technology could take us and hurt us. And then they're yeah. like, oh, no, it's all in the same universe. So I'm like, okay, so we've just been screwing ourselves over consistently, but there's a group of people saying, oh, no, it's new technology. It's fine. Right. You know, when fans do it, it's it's better. And and you've already heard how I feel about that. But I can, like, tolerate and accept fans having fun. You know, I think it's all a load of crap and none of it's actually right. But, all right, you're having fun with, like, you know, some movies and, and studios and directors or whatever that you like. Cool. But when a fucking TV show does it terribly, that's even worse than fans having fun. Because they decided from a creative standpoint that they're just going to force all this shit together. And that yeah. is bad. That yeah, was, I'm, that was bad. I'm with you. Yeah, I did. That was the first Netflix season of black mirror. Um, after it got bought, you know, and uh, went over from the, the British channel. I don't know what channel it was on in Britain, but then I was like, I watched it and I think I hated most of the episodes except one, that one with like the robotic dogs chasing the woman. Oh, that was pretty good. Where the, yeah, there's very little dialogue, and it's just a survival story. I'm like, great, this is unique. And then what, the other five episodes in that season, every single episode was about someone's consciousness getting stored in something else. And I'm like, why are they repeating the same story over and over and over? Oh, and that's, do you remember that's, that stupid episode with the memory machine? Where the, the woman no. could, like, hook the machine up to the people and it would, like, show their memories? And then, like, the whole episode makes the big point about how memories can be easily influenced and the machine is somewhat unreliable. But then they solve the crime at the end because they hook it up to a hamster. I <laughs> actually do kind of remember and that the, bullshit. And the, no. the show is just like, the hamster had perfect recall. And I'm just <laughs> like, oh my god, fuck you. <laughs> we need an objective source, this hamster. That was, I was, I was like laughing. That was like so bad. I was just, I felt, I loved it because it was so bad, but I hated it for what it was. And I just, because like, they weren't trying to be bad. They were actually yes. trying to pass that one by on you and have you buy it. Yes, because that's the episode. They were trying where, like, to be dumb. They the, were being the, serious with it. The killer like kills the, the, the parent. And then, like, the killer yeah. – uh, yeah, the killer's trying to cover up everybody who saw her commit the crime because she knows the memory machine exists. So she right. goes and kills right. the dude who, like, saw the crime. But as she ki- after she kills the dude, she realized that the baby saw her kill the dude. So she's like, I have to kill the baby, and she does. And then in the last scene – they're, they, like, get her, and they say – there's a throwaway line of dialogue where they're like, she didn't have to kill the baby because it was blind. But then we had the hamster <laughs> to see who killed the baby. And I'm just like, wouldn't the hamster have seen her kill the other dude too? Oh, and I'm just, I was – oh, God. That is terrible. I – Black Mirror got – I haven't seen the new stuff. I, I, I don't want to check it out, but I probably should because I'm a completionist. But Black Mirror. I want to watch the movie, the the Choose Your Own Adventure movie. Oh yeah, when they we made a video game on Netflix. Yeah, we should do that. 
What, what else you got in your notes? Yeah, I just got a, a few more things. Um, I, I like the multiple names thing, honestly, that people take different names and, and in her dreams, people have different names. Mm, sure. I saw an interesting idea on the internet about that it's similar to Hollywood where everyone has to wear so many different hats yeah. and different personas to make it and to act and all of that, that it really reflects that. I, I like that as well because I, I really like that. Um, David Lynch has a big thing for doppelgangers, like a, a common motif in a lot of his stuff is, you know, people, uh, two versions of a person or people being replaced by people, that type of thing. And it works oh, okay. really well in this movie because of exactly what you said. You know, it's that reflection on Hollywood that one, you know, one person plays, you know, so many different roles. They're different people in different things. And to the extent that, you know, there's some people who fall into the category of, you know, we, we see them as them. Like, just, uh, for example, I don't know, uh, Tom Hanks. Like, Tom Hanks to everybody is Tom Hanks because he's a famous movie star. But he's also, you know, he's played tons of roles. You know, he's uh, the guy from Castaway. He's Forrest Gump. He's, Wilson. Yeah, he's Captain Phillips. He's, he's Woody from Toy Story. And, you know, yeah. and... We have that in Hollywood where someone we know can take on all these different roles. But at the same time, we have those actors that are not famous. We just know them as, like, a that guy. Like, we've seen him in a bunch of things, but we don't really know who he is or anything. He just might yeah. be. It's like, oh, that's the, that's the guy from that movie or that TV show. And so Hollywood is very just doppelgangerish and and uh, copies of people in this weird way. Hell, even in, you know, you get to pick your SAG name, your Screen Actors Guild name. Most actors, the name that we know them by is not their birth name. They had to change it. They didn't have to change it, but they changed it to, you know, sound better or, you know, to, to make a name for themselves. Like Willem Dafoe, his real name is not Willem. His real name is William, but he chose to go as an actor by Willem because it set him apart. And actors do that all the time. And it's just another layer to Hollywood just being like, you are multiple people and multiple personas, and it's this movie yeah. exemplifies that in such a such a fantastic way to add to the message of this movie. Yeah. So so you grew to like it when it happened. You were confused as hell, but then you, you understood. And you were able like, to digest it better. The, the waitress is Betty, but she was Diane. But <laughs> was she played by Naomi Watts? What the hell is going on here? Yeah, and, and David Lynch moment. even does a good job with the, the lookalikes. Like, you know, Naomi Watts oh God, and the dude. waitress look very similar. Um, yeah. Rita and the neighbor look pretty similar with the dark hair. The a one that bit. switches apartments. Much. And I, I think that's, you know, also intentional where it's just like there's all yeah. this kind of bleeding through for sure. When Rita puts the wig on, she looks like Naomi Watts. Oh, yeah, definitely. That was crazy. That shit was crazy. <laughs> you don't have to wear that in the house. And it's like, oh, yeah, I just wanted to see what it looked like. And now I want to sleep with you. <laughs> I know, dude. That was so out of place when it happened, when she's just like gets in bed naked and they bang. I'm like, where did this come from? <laughs> Until you see the end that they're yes, actually lovers yes. and all yeah, that. Yeah, because it's so awkward when, you know, Naomi Watts is like, have you ever done this before? To the amnesiac woman who very appropriately says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I want to. Yeah, and then she's like, have you done it? I don't know, but I want to. I want to. I love you. I want to make love to you. And it's just like, okay, we're doing this now. We're doing this now. <laughs> what about the pimp? The pimp and the blonde hooker that he has going to look for some girl? Who's the actress playing the blonde hooker? Yes, so that, of course, is Rena Riffle who we have seen earlier this month in Cinemodities. Oh, right, right. She is she was Penny the showgirl. from Showgirls. Yes, she's also uh, the star 
and the director and the producer and the editor and the writer of Showgirls 2, which we have yet to watch, but that'll, that'll oh, come one day. Nice. Um, yeah, I guess we should say Showgirls 2, I, we still need to do a bonus episode on that. We also still need to do a bonus episode on Like Mike 2, just saying. <laughs> oh, gosh. But, yeah, that was Rena Riffle. She's only in it for one scene. Her nipples are fully erect and yes. busting through her shirt. Uh, and and what yeah the the hitman says something to her asking her about like new girls on the street with dark hair right i I guess i've always taken that as since he's this bumbling hitman he's kind of like looking for rita because she escaped the hit in the beginning but he wasn't in the hit at the beginning so i don't know how that really connects like tied in with the mob and all that yeah it's got to be something like that but we don't really get a lot from from her enough in that scene to really like flesh that out but she's definitely you know the hooker and it's saying something like um you know have you seen anybody and she's just like i don't know no can i have a cigarette <laughs> yeah all right that makes sense that she's makes great sense. it's, her, it's her with the whole great, hit though. hitman persona of him just like you know searching for rita well it's it's in line with rita being searched for but they can't find her yeah yeah which is what she really wants yep that there is this search and this hunt, but she's evading it. And now Diane's actually helping her evade it instead of being the reason that she's going to die. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. She's doing the right – she's doing the good thing. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those nipples are like their own character. Dude, they were some serious <laughs> nips. You can't look away. It's like all this I stuff know. in David Lynch movies that's subtle and, you know, it's like you almost have to notice like 80% of it subconsciously. This is just like boom. This is like the first Nipples. thing you see. It's like directly center frame. <laughs> Dude, do you think those are her real nipples or do they put like props in there? I oh that's a good how question. Do get, how do you get nipples like that? After after I've watching never had Sh- nipples like that. <laughs> after watching Showgirls, I would imagine that right before that scene, David Lynch had Rena Riffle rub ice cubes on her nipples to get him that erect. Oh, is that just what you want to imagine? Or that, yeah, that's what I want to imagine because that happens okay. in Showgirls where they make them rub nipples oh. ice on their nipples to get them erect. <laughs> it probably works. I mean, I mean, I'd be. I do it every day. They don't get that erect. I think you need to have. I need to. You need to have the goods to get your nipples that way. Like if your nipples yeah. aren't big enough, then you'd probably have to like, like I don't know, like torture them to get them to swell up or something to make them look like that. Truth. <laughs> well, like, and what if you're so good for the part, but you just don't have the nipples for it? Like, does Hollywood just not let you get the role? Like, mm, you need you need plumper nips for this I needed- role. We sh- we need that movie for the next time we we go back to shoot up and spit out series. We need the movie about an actress not getting the part because she has inferior nipples. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's true. Chewed up and spit out right there, man. Welcome to nipple modities. Here we talk about <laughs> nipples. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the chewed up and spit out theme was really well done in this movie. Straight up. Oh yeah, once you once you have it was a... pervasive. Yeah, once you have um, uh, the the idea of what's going on in this movie, I think that just emphasizes it. But you get enough of it with kind of this whole, um, you know, I, I like I said, I definitely thought of it with the whole, um, this is the girl, like this Hollywood machine, all this these men the behind the scenes are, are telling us, like, this is the one that gets the part. Like, it's up to us. It's not up to who right. you decide is the creative force, you know, that type of thing. And we actually feel bad for Diane, who just god dang killed someone and we feel bad because she got chewed up and spit out we yep. recognize that that's legit damage to someone yep absolutely absolutely 
not like under the Silver Lake, where like, I mean, you know the guy's a POS, but. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's, he's the really, best. He's, you want to like see what's going to happen, but you don't really care too much about him. No, he's a hero. He has he, sex with everybody. He's a hero. <laughs> God. He just bangs anyone he wants to. He, he can just look dogs. at him and say, you. He smells like skunk. <laughs> the, the, last, the last thing I had in my notes was... Robe ashtray coffee cup. What the hell is David Lynch talking about? He's like, pay attention to these goddamn things. Mm. No, dude. <laughs> I just wanted the ad. I just give me the answer key. I need the answer key on the robe ashtray and coffee cup because, dude, I got nothing for any of them. So the the robe the robe one I was trying to read about for this, and I was reading some some stuff on a on a website a theory website. I want to point out in a bit, but um. I was I was trying to read, and they were, like, pointing out all the different robes in the movie and who wears which robes and who shares which robes, and I'm like... And I, for some reason, I, I could not focus on it. Like, this was in the middle of a lot of other research. I'm not, like, saying I was, like, distracted by something, but for some reason, this, like, thing I was reading about the robes, I was like, oh, I, I cannot get behind this. The only thing that stood out to me is it's that... It's just too much. Yeah, it was so, like, minutely detailed of who was wearing robes and when and who where they got the robes in the movie, and I was just like, oh my god. And the one thing I did like is that they, they mentioned something where the robe that Naomi Watts is wearing in reality is like this very kind of like grayish, like off-white, like rattled or uh, tattered type of robe. And it is, it looks like a, a run-down and worn-down version of the robe she wears earlier in the movie in some scene with, uh, with Rita. And I'm like, okay, I kind of, I like that. You know, going from dream to reality and dream and the fantasy, the robe is nice and pristine, but in reality, okay. her robe is just, you know, dilapidated and worn out and all that stuff. I get, all right, I guess that kind of parallels the the, yeah. the theme. The the ashtray, I... <laughs> I thought you about to say the ass. The, 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 the ass. Are talking about ass? Ass to ass. <laughs> <laughs> the, the ashtray, I, I don't think that's something that you needed to point out. I mean... In reality, you know, when Diane wakes up, the neighbor comes over. She's like, it's been three weeks. Can I get my stuff? She takes that piano-shaped ashtray. And, oh, and is so, that the same one that was in that other scene? Well, because there's the dude on the phone, and he was like, it's done or something. That's, or a, it's that's a different ashtray. And there's an ashtray. Yeah. Right. That's a different ashtray. Are we not ashtray. supposed to pay attention to that one? I See, that's what I don't know, because the piano ashtray is the thing that gives us some sense of when these things are occurring in reality because when we first wake up from the dream the neighbor takes the the piano ashtray and we see the blue key and so we know or we're going to know that you know this is after the hit's we been carried out we know the job's out. been done yeah and then when we get the scenes where camilla and uh diane are you know uh, lezzing out on the couch and stuff like that the piano ashtray is back there. So that is just a tool, a show-don't-tell tool to know where this is happening in the chronology. But I don't... I think that's obvious. I don't think that's something we need to be pointed out by David Lynch, which makes me think he's referencing the other ashtray, which is next to the red lampshade, which we see at the beginning of the movie in the chain of phone calls, like you were pointing out. Yeah. And then we also find out that it is in Diane's apartment at the end of the movie when she gets the call from Camilla to go to the party. What that means, I don't know, because that seems like the red lampshade is more important. I don't know what the ashtray has to do. It seems like the ashtray has the same number of cigarettes in both scenes at the beginning and the end. <laughs> I don't know, man. My brain doesn't have the power to, to solve this one. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing is where it's like, 
thinking about this movie without the clues leads to whoever's brain is working on it to reach certain conclusions that they can live with. The clues just seem to add more questions because we wouldn't have thought about these things without those being pointed out, and we don't know why they've been pointed out. Yeah, I need to come back to it, I think, to to dial that one in. Because you just threw a lot of stuff at me, and I feel like there might be something there. Mm -hmm. David Lynch is convinced, and as far as I'm concerned, he's a pretty good expert on this stuff. But I'm not seeing it. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's, uh, definitely an important important fact that it's, it's tough to see and you know it's like we said it's that exercise of reworking your brain type of thing and it's just like you know you got to find that that right way to think about it it seems which is interesting you know i know you don't like that it doesn't give answers but i love that that exercise that type of type of no idea. yeah I, i'm cool with it in some strange way in some strange <laughs> masochistic way right yes now. yes so one more time the ashtray is in the series of phone calls and mm-hmm. in the end, it's in Di- real Diane's apartment. Yeah, when when she gets the call to um, get go to the party from uh, Camilla. Oh, in the flashback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's when she gets the call, she picks up the phone, and it's the it's the black uh, dial phone. It's the the lamp with the red lampshade and that ashtray, and it's the same exact oh, what shot, the which fuck is from was the... that rotary bullshit with the goddamn <laughs> dentist light on it. That was some weird shit. <laughs> that was weird, yes, because apparently there's some code you can put into that phone, which involves hanging it up because he's pressing the um the whatever it's called the 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 actuator or whatever the hell that thing is. You know the thing to hang it up. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I I think so. That's another big thing with David Lynch is, is phones. He has a thing for phones, like showing phones and phones ringing. He really likes that, it seems. <laughs> okay. It seems like with the ashtray and the uh, the robe, he's just, again, drawing parallels of, like, these real-life things coming to play in yeah. her psyche in some way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, like, her going to the movie or the, the goddamn party is her, you know, getting involved with the... Like her last scene of seeing Camilla being part of just the twisted way Hollywood works. Yeah. And then in the dream, the the fantasy, the whatever we're calling it, it's her seeing these Hollywood, you know, masterminds mm-hmm. communicating. Mm-hmm. It it def he, David Lynch definitely has a command of how to represent a dream. I think in a more realistic way, like you said, taking aspects of reality and using them in a surreal way that would actually happen in a dream. You know, like, to compare it to when you mentioned Inception earlier, like, Inception is all just like, look at this, we can bend cities and layer them on top of each other, and we can blow up shit and it goes slow motion, fast motion, and it's like, sure, maybe some people have dreams that way, but it's more of subconscious, the reality of it, I would say, is the more subconscious level of, you know, we're seeing natural or usual things, but in these very strange ways. You think people have dreams like that? I probably I mean I'm sure there's some people with like ridiculous dreams where stuff's going super crazy you know I want to have dreams like that (laughs) I want to have dreams like that (laughs) I want to see a city flip over onto itself (laughs) that'd be so cool dude my mind doesn't my mind isn't capable of that while I'm asleep yeah I know like I said my dream is I just get stuck in a wall I know I can't even do anything fun in the wall I just got stuck in there (laughs) All right, the coffee cup. Which which coffee cup? I don't know. David Lynch said, "Pay attention to the coffee cup." Oh yes, that's the, the, the ashtray and the coffee cup. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh sorry, I was con- I was 
putting the red lampshade in there at the last time. Um, so oh. the the coffee cup. The only thing I could think of is, um, of course, uh, Angelo Badalamenti is the guy who spits out the espresso in the oh, dream. Yeah. When when he makes eye contact with Diane in reality, she is drinking coffee at oh. at the dinner party. What that means, I don't know. Um, oh, that's interesting, they're, dude. They're definitely different sizes because, you know, he has a, an espresso cup and then she has, like, a full mug type of thing. Um, they do look similar. I mean, they look like um, same design, white color, that type of thing. Um, but beyond that, you know, it's it's kind of like dude. another way that, that that dream and the reality are commingling to some extent. What if it's... What if it's when he makes eye contact with her, it's her him, right? Chewed up and spit out. He spits out the espresso. What if that's him acknowledging like she's been spit out? She's just a, a trash, you know, mm. in his eyes, in Hollywood's eyes. Oh, I because that dinner party chronologically takes place before her fantasy. Yeah. And so she relates the the she might know him as part of the movie business in reality that the movie doesn't explain to us. They may she sees him watching her drink coffee and then he is one of the ones who is responsible for people not getting certain parts who spits out that coffee. I like it. I love right. it. I love it. Bro, that's the most on the nose chewed up and spit out analogy we almost missed it oh that's because even like the we were laughing at it before but the executive says you know that came highly recommended it could be like she came highly recommended oh, she has a great yeah. resume and he's just like nope this is the girl not her not this anyone is the else girl yep oh man boom we're hey, making breakthroughs yes yeah, i said at the start we didn't we weren't going to solve this movie but i never said we weren't going to figure some things out so i'm glad we did <laughs> That's a big one. I like that. Yeah, I never thought about it that way. That's great. Man, yeah, this is the he actually spit some shit out in the chewed up and spit out movie, mm-hmm. and it almost passed us by. <laughs> David Lynch's hint, it it steered us in the right direction. Yeah, there you go. Right on. I dig it. Good, good work, Mister Lynch. Good work. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> All right. Was there anything else you had? Any other questions? Scenes? We covered a lot of it. For sure. Yeah, we covered a lot. I'm trying to think. I feel like there was something I remembered. I think the 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 I'm looking through my notes. The one that I wanted to mention. Um, so it it's been just the kind of theme of this whole series is that uh we've been getting some s- s- combination. Not in every movie, but every movie seems to have uh either girl on girl action or furious masturbation. Uh, so of course, under the Silver Lake, True. Andrew Garfield is masturbating to his old uh, to a slew of magazines. Um, True. Black Swan, we get we get we get both in there. Uh, we get um, not Naomi Watts, Natalie Portman masturbating, and there's a girl on girl scene, which is a dream or hallucination. What was after that? Showgirls, we got a little bit of girl on girl action. Um, last week was Neon Demon. Oh, which we get attempted rape between two women. That was fun. Uh, and then oh. this week, we have girl-on-girl action, and we have Naomi Watts crying while she's masturbating. Yeah, that was tough to watch. That is very uncomfortable because, like I said earlier, I love Naomi Watts. Once again, hit me up. You'll never have to cry while you're masturbating again. <laughs> <laughs> that might need to get bleeped out. Uh, but but she is, like, hurting herself. She's crying. She, like, can't see straight. And she's and so like, sl- like slapping her genitals, it sounds like. 
It was pretty fierce. No good. No good. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Unless you're into that. And I'm not. You know. But at, at the end of the series. Who are we to tell people how to masturbate, Rob? Come I on. Do, well, yeah. I, I'm with you there. At the end of the series, I do want to make it clear. The intention was not to pick five movies that involved masturbation <laughs> and girl on yeah. girl action. I swear. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm definitely not against it, but I don't need to tell other people that. You know, I didn't need a series to tell that. There was definitely bigger <laughs> things going on here. I swear. You believe me, right, Justin? Oh, God, we just got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just getting word. Uh, every episode on Podbean has just been deleted. <laughs> Oh, man. You're pushing it. You're starting to really push it. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to mention that because it happened again in this movie. Disclaimer. And, yeah, yeah. So, so there we go. I had to mention the uh, Naomi Watts masturbating De- very depressedly. <laughs> Can I read you something from the uh, depths of Reddit here? Oh, yeah. I guess I guess that would be the last thing I wanted to go to. Um, I, I figured you would – well, since you told me, uh, you did some Googling and looking around with theories – uh, I did as well, yeah. but I decided to focus on one specific outlet uh, just to kind of highlight it in this episode, and uh, I didn't go to any Reddit stuff. So, yeah, throw it at us. What do you got from Reddit? All right, so I noticed the number 16 popping up a few times in the movie. Okay. There was the song that, um, you know, This Is The Girl, the scene that they were, the song they were singing mm. for that role had, you know, 16 reasons why I love you. Yep. Oh, yeah, great music in that scene. We didn't mention that old school, like, uh, doo-wop type stuff. I love that, those two songs they do in that scene. Yeah, I like that a lot. So and then there was it was on the door in Diane's real you know townhouse yep. complex yeah her apartment number yeah yeah but it wasn't she wasn't in sixteen it was actually oh, okay. when Justin Thoreau was hiding out at what's his face's place after oh, you know the the, the dirtiest rattiest motel <laughs> yeah he was in door number sixteen okay okay. All right, so I found – and I noticed that, but I didn't you know, know what to think about it. And then I find this, you know, I, two upvotes on Reddit. <laughs> was this on like the Mulholland Drive subreddit or anything? Or no, it was just... on the True Film. Okay. And I only had 3% battery when I was reading this. <laughs> okay, I know right it's screenshotted. I read this and I was like, that is interesting. And it goes in line with kind of the making up names that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Check this out. Check out what person whose username, I don't know what it is because it's not in the screenshot. Okay. They wrote a good bit. I just got this. Okay. There's some mystery surrounding which apartment the events happen in. The girl starts at apartment 12. The girls start at apartment 12 and are directed to apartment 17, but there's a flower pointing to apartment 16. Aunt Ruth's address is 1612. Mm Mm-hmm. Havenhurst. Adam is staying in room number 16 at the Flophouse Hotel. Lynch makes number 16 import, 
important. Look at the apartment residence board. Diane Selwyn is listed in number 12. The woman who is in number 12 is DeRosa listed is thus listed in 17. So who is A. Gonzalez in number 16? I think Camila Rhodes is a stage name and Gonzalez is her real name. Why? Why, you may ask. I added that part. Okay. <laughs> because Camila is very pointedly shown speaking fluent Spanish in several parts of the film. Mm-hmm. There's a reason for that. They end there. They end there. <laughs> but then Georgia Blossom responds to, to build on the idea. The idea of a non-Hispanic stage name for a Latina actress in your theory is echoed by another part of the film. When the dark-haired woman with amnesia is in the bathroom, Betty asks her name. She looks at a poster for the movie Gilda with Rita Hayworth Mm -hmm. and says her name is Rita. Rita Hayworth was born Margarita Carmen Cancino. Mm. That is interesting. That's some connections right there. (laughs) Dude, they found some connections. Oh, yeah. I, I dig it. I don't know if there's anything serious to it, but the sure. 16 and the 1612 and the apartment 16 and 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I really ever paid much attention to the 16 stuff before, but that's a good point that it, it shows up in so many places for sure. Yeah, and it could go – this person connected it to the different names. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the full backing behind 16, but there's something up with the 16s. Oh, yeah, Definitely. And I don't. I haven't seen it explored other than there. Okay. Okay. Right on. I dig it. Did you find anything else on Reddit? I don't know how how, uh, how far did you dig on Reddit? Because I know Reddit is one of those definitely a, a goldmine for these theories and stuff like that. Yeah, I that was about the best I got. Okay. Sure. I think a lot of my understanding of the movie came from just reading about it and and thinking yeah. about it in terms of a dream, and then I really started to finalize my own take on it yeah yeah i think that's a good first step you know when you see this movie kind of for the first time if you if you dive into all of the theories it's gonna be like crazy overwhelming because i know even to this day i, I read some theories and i'm they'll, they'll mention like something in a, the background of a shot and i'll be like where was that like when was that in the movie like i didn't notice you know like a bowl or in the background or something like that that they're trying to use to bolster their argument and stuff like that nature. yeah yeah so, yeah, Reddit is good. I, I definitely recommend, um, like I said earlier, you know, this is definitely a movie that once you get some analysis on and read different theories, rewatching it is well worth it just to kind of see how everything fits and, and how you think about them. Um, Reddit's great for that. Just Googling around um, yeah. is also great. I wanted to point out where I focused on because uh, I've never really taken a huge dive into this website before, but it is uh, mulholland-drive.net. So Mulholland Drive with a dash in between the two words, okay. .net, and this whole thing is just a fan site for people to give theories. You know, there's forums, there's there's actually a lot of good background information on the movie, like where they filmed things and how they did certain special effects, so it's not just theories and stuff like that. But they have whole pages and pages of just, like, people writing, you know, about their different interpretations, their uh, analyses. Um, I did want to point out that on if you go to their homepage and you go to the main site, there's a... There's a bunch of links at the top, and one of them is is called Theories, and they break down the theories into four categories. There's the theories that describe the movie as a dream and reality, so as we've been describing it, and like I said, probably the accepted theory. There's theories that this movie was all a dream. 
There's theories that this movie was all real, and then there's theories that this is a metaphysical symbolism movie, which gets way into the spiritual realm, such as one being titled, Rita and Betty are soul wanderers. Uh, What the fuck? (laughs) Another one called Dying Dream slash Afterlife Theory. There's a theory called Parallel Universes 1 and a theory called Parallel Universes 2. <laughs> so Damn. so people people have some crazy and I, I I went through some of those theories. I think they're they're very interesting. I respect um, it. Exactly. That that's the point is that I respect it for sure. And then even the other ones that fall into, you know, the um the the dream and reality is what's accepted how we've been describing it. You know, there's this stuff where it's like uh, has something to do. The theory is titled the abortion theory. Uh, there's Whoa. one. There's one uh, titled Diane's suicide is not real. Uh, there's Whoa. one titled. Uh, oh, of course, replay of Diane's sexual abru- abuse, which we touched on. Uh, yeah. One titled Battle of Super Ego and Id. So that that should be interesting. But yeah, I, I definitely These recommend. Are deep. Bro. If you want to know more about Mulholland Drive, and you know, we could do another three hours just talking about. We could probably do three hours if Justin and I picked one of these theories, just talking about that theory. Um, yeah, I definitely recommend you check out this uh, this website, Mulholland-Drive.net. It's got a lot of good information about the movie, uh, like the actual filmmaking behind it. It's got all these theories, the forums. You know, you can read all these other crazy posts and stuff like that. Um, they. The people putting the movie into different chronological orders and how and based on these interpretations, it's all very Damn. very interesting. And I think that was kind of where I wanted to. Uh, of course, if you have anything else, feel free to throw it at us. But that's no, the thing it's all you, man. That I think I've encap- done enough. Perfect. I think that this movie, this is what encapsulate it, encapsulates it is that there's so many websites, there's so many outlets for interpretation of this movie. Um, David Lynch has created something that is infinitely it's a well of infinite things to glean from like you know you you can you can watch this movie as many times and get something different from it each time all based on the way that you're thinking and all based on the way you want to approach it and at the end of the day i think whether you love or hate this movie whether you you know are bored by it whether you're enthralled by it this is a creation of i think the highest form that it is eternal I would consider this to be an eternal story, an eternal movie, just in the sense that it it gives itself something new every time you watch it. And I think that's amazing. I think that's what we need more of in movies, and I think that they should never be swept under the rug or, or you know, written off for any reason, like TV shows or somebody thinks it's nonsense. This is, I'm going to go far as say it is a masterpiece. A lot of people consider it to be David Lynch's masterpiece. They're wrong. Everybody knows that it's Rabbit's. Zach is screaming somewhere right now because Zach hates rabbits, but it is amazing. Naomi Watts is also in rabbits, so, um, but you don't see her because she's wearing a full-body rabbit costume the whole time. But this movie is a significant masterpiece of storytelling and filmmaking, and I hope that it stays recognized that way for all of history. I hope that this is in, like, a, the film reels of this are in a salt mine somewhere. So when like the world ends and the nuclear war happens and <laughs> humanity repopulates, they can find this again. <laughs> so I yeah, guess I have to ask. I agree. It was it was incredible. Perfect. That's what I was going to ask. You know, I um I was kind of expecting the reaction I got, like I mentioned at the start. But uh, overall, you were. I'm glad you found this intriguing because I mean that's... you've got me read like a book, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you what I thought. You knew. 
Perfect. Perfect. That's good. So so you've been on here for three movies uh, that you've liked, which is good, because Ben did not like the Neon Demon because he's a goober. Uh, so I'm keeping the streak alive with you. Cool, cool. And I, I guess um, we'll come back to that, keeping that streak alive, because at the end of this, since this is our last uh, episode of the Shoot Up and Spit Out series, we will have to talk about what's coming next month. But before we can do that, are you ready, Justin, to move on to our questions about this film? Oh, I'm ready. Are you ready? I, I think I'm very ready. And I'm going to start this time because I'm giving this movie a distinction that I, I give to things I don't think it's come up on this podcast before, but for both cinemodities and late-night status, my answer is 1,000% elephants. That's it. What? That is, that is, a, what? That is a very— What did you just say? <laughs> I said 1,000% elephants. Okay. That is a very, very strong form of a yes for me. So that's, that's like above just a yes. That's above like a, an absolutely or a definitely. That's above like a fuck yeah or a fuck yes. It's like on some Aladdin shit. Uh, so, so a thousand percent elephants was actually a sign that some people were holding up in the 2014 World Cup for uh, Ivory Coast. Oh. So that's, that's where it comes from, a thousand percent elephants. Okay. Like I was watching the 2014 World Cup. And I was like, I remember like I had it streaming on my computer and I like, like got up and like walked away to do something else. Like, I don't know, get food or pick something up or whatever. And when I came back and sat down, I looked at my computer screen expecting soccer, but it was a shot of the stands and people holding up a sign that just said a thousand percent elephants. And, and the comment stuck with you and the, and the commentator. And there was like, no, it was so weird. Cause when I sat down and saw it, no one was talking like the commentators weren't talking. And I was like, <laughs> what's going on? And then like two seconds after that, I, I, I absorbed what I was reading. A commentator comes in and goes a thousand percent elephants. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and it stuck with me. And I've just used that as like, if someone, if I have to give a really strong yes, I won't say 100%. I'll say a thousand, or it's stronger than 100%. It's a thousand percent elephants. And so this movie gets that for me. It is a 1,000% elephant cinemodity. How can you not think this is a cinematic oddity? This is David Lynch at his finest. And Late Night, I think this discussion it exemplifies it perfectly. When I show a late night movie, the best response I want is intrigue, fascination, great discussion, great debate. And I think this conversation just is exactly what we got from that. And this movie lends itself to that. So I'm going a thousand percent elephants for both. <laughs> nice. All right. What, what, what about you? What do you got for these two? All right. Well, you know, I guess I'm 1,000% elephants on. I thought it was a great movie as well. Nice. I think I've shown that. And this is, you know, I've I've gone back and forth on fan theories, but I think the way just fans are so dedicated to this movie and trying to understand it and think about it is really a tribute to how much is really going on in this, in this movie. Definitely. So, again, kudos. Excellent movie. 10 out of 10. Is it a cinemodity? Dude, yes, I had no clue what the fuck was happening, okay? I just was so thrown off and put, you know, just thoroughly confused. And the way it was just set up so perfectly, that was incredibly unique. And it was the first time I've been... I've been impacted in such a way from a movie. Now, lots of stuff confuses you, but the way this does it and just the masterful way that Lynch just lays it all out and really influences the viewer 
mm-hmm. dude, that's that's unique and it's something special. So definitely a cinematic oddity there. Right yes. on, right on. Glad I'm glad you liked it because this is uh, definitely this movie uh, could uh, go like you said earlier with Ben. You know how is he still friends with you? <laughs> yeah, it it could go that way. <laughs> well, I like stuff that makes me think. Definitely. I like stuff that makes me use my mind. And if if something's a mind fuck, I'm all about it. And this fits the bill. Perfect. And you, goddamn, you set me up, dude. You 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 set me up. <laughs> yes. But but you know you were doing it. For a positive reason, and it was it was a positive experience. So I don't hate you good, any more good. than I yeah, ever you got did you got pushed in the deep end and you survived. Good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. It was quality. Yes, late night movie. I've come to realize I don't think I ever watch movies during the day. So mm-hmm. it's going to be more interesting to see if I find a daytime movie. To be mm, honest, okay. Because I think I'll watch anything at night. Sure, unsolved mysteries definitely. <laughs> I'll only watch that if I'm ready to fall asleep. <laughs> and, be, and be intermittently woken up by me screaming at you? Yeah. It's <laughs> Matthew McConaughey, look! <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a 50-50. When you're asleep, if I wake you up, it's either scream at you about Unsolved Mysteries or because I've cooked something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'll wake up and tell you to change the channel because I don't want to sleep to the... Oh, yes, that's right! <laughs> I almost forgot about that. You're like you're like 99% asleep telling me what I can't put on because you don't want to watch it. And I'm like, just think you're fucking asleep. <laughs> Bro, Sleep Justin's another person. What can I say, dude? <laughs> Different oh. side comes out, dude. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah, okay. So I like that. Maybe, uh, maybe in the future, when you're on here, in the future, we can talk about if, if you would watch these during the day. I like that. All right. Oh, okay, okay. So so this is definitely a movie that I am so enthralled by and I get so into watching, even though I've seen it so many times, that um, I, I fall into the trap of watching it and paying attention to the movie and the analysis of it more than I think of snacks. So I don't have too many, but, you know, that, that's okay. We've got no shortage of stuff at the restaurant. Um, I didn't really have – actually, I'm looking at my notes now. I don't think I had any food on here. I just had people to hire. Oh. So – uh, Angelo Badalamenti, the guy who spits out the coffee, the espresso. Yeah. I would like to hire him as our personal coffee taster for the restaurant. Nice. And we will not serve any coffee unless it gets his approval. <laughs> I think there's a name for that, for a professional coffee taster. I just couldn't remember it, and I didn't look it up. Nice. But I would love to hire him, and I would love to hire the the guy that uh, – knocks out Billy Ray Cyrus, who's asking for Adam Kesher. I want him to be the bouncer of the restaurant, but instead of kicking people out of the restaurant, he takes them deeper into it so they can't get out. Nice. And so That's it's like... Good. It's like the it's like seven stages teleportation of hell. Oh, yeah, it could be like that. Like, he takes you from uh, stage two to stage five or something like that, and you gotta work, try and work your way back out. Yeah, and if you don't <laughs> repent, he takes you deeper. <laughs> repent i like that <laughs> if you don't tell them where adam kesher is yeah, yeah. oh that's and then the only the only other one we have i don't know if it's come up while well, you've been on here justin but we do have like a main street in the restaurant like you know how like the disney studio backlot has like a main street with like storefronts and they film a lot of stuff on there like it's a set we have something similar there's like a main street with storefronts one of the storefronts is like just a like a museum type thing where we have busts of directors that we love 
David Lynch is in there, I'm pretty sure. Cool. Uh, along with, um, I think Martin Brest is in there. I think Colin Trevorrow's in there. Um, stuff like that. Colin Farrell. One of the st- uh, no, he's, I don't. He's, I don't think he's a he's director. Oh, directors. I got. Yeah, you. yeah. It's just directors. We never talked about an. Act- I think we hire actors to run around the restaurant and do stuff. The directors just get busts. But <laughs> another one is like there's a barber shop in there. Um, there's some there's some little kiosks on Main Street where you can get like lab work, like blood work and stuff done. Um, there there's a lot of a lot of crazy stuff on Main Street. But I was thinking maybe as a, a recurring event at the restaurant. On Main Street, we can set up like a type of flea market, and the flea market would sell jewelry covered in paint that divorced or fighting spouses don't want their significant others to have. Oh! So it's like if you're angry at your spouse, you take their jewelry, you cover it in paint, and then you can sell it at the Cinemodities flea market. (laughs) Wow, that's good. That's a good one. Who doesn't want some painted jewelry? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! I know we talked about that scene, but that what's her, the wife's name is like Lorraine or something in the movie. Yeah. Oh my god, she is so shrill. Like I wanted her to stop screaming so bad. Right. And then Billy Ray Cyrus <laughs> knocks him out because he's like, "I don't. You never. You never touch your wife like that. I don't care what she's done." Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's right. <laughs> that's oh, great. God. Way to treat your wife, buddy. I don't care what she's done. Throw him out! Okay, so that, that was my three. Like I said, I didn't have any snacks. What did you get? Anything for the restaurant from this movie? Yeah, I got a good dish. You know, you know, I always come here with a good dish. Of course. So, boxing kangaroo steaks. Oh. Now you don't just get these served. You have to beat the kangaroo in a boxing match first. I love it. I was not even thinking of that direction, but that's amazing. <laughs> one on one, you and the kangaroo, you got to knock this thing out, and then the the cooks come in, the kitchen comes, and and they you know they clean, they dress the kangaroo, and you get it, you get a steak, and it comes served with a side of espresso. Now I'm glad you hired what is his name, Angelo Bartholomoni, <laughs> Bartolomenti, but yes, <laughs> Bartolomente. I'm glad you hired him because this espresso. He tastes it, makes sure it's up to his standards, Mm -hmm. and then he spits it out into your glass. (laughs) It's the bottle of mente backwash espresso. Oh, perfect. (laughs) That no, okay, you even got the name. That's that is perfect. I love that. And see, I don't even know you're gonna go there. I love the idea that when I wasn't thinking that you had to you had to beat the kangaroo in a boxing match but that is amazing because you know how when you go to some restaurants and you like order lobster and they let you pick the lobster from the tank oh yeah this is like we would have like a little like gym room like with a ring and punching <laughs> yeah, bags yeah. and it would be filled with kangaroos and you go have the customer go yeah. in and be like what's kangaroo do you want a box oh oh my god <laughs> and so so is it so clearly or maybe i'm, I'm asking is it clear that the boxing match would have to be to the death. Like, do you no, have you to just kill the knock kangaroo? Out the kangaroo? Okay, you just have to knock you just it gotta, out. And then the staff handles the rest. If the customer gets knocked out by the kangaroo, does the kangaroo get to eat the customer? 
Oh, boy. Because otherwise, how are we feeding and keeping these kangaroos in our restaurant? How so are we finding many boxing kangaroos? How many boxing kangaroos are we going to have? Yeah, I, you know, I hadn't thought about the maintenance cost for this. <laughs> That's fair. That is that is up to Zach and I because we are the ones who own and operate the restaurant. But I love this too much that it needs to be figured out now. <laughs> That's a good one. I don't know. I don't know. Are we going to feed the customers to the kangaroos? we got to keep them alive somehow, right? A fight, a fight to the death. Okay, I just Googled how many boxing kangaroos exist. <laughs> and, and some videos come up of kangaroos boxing. One of the people also ask how many kangaroos are there? Apparently, 40... how many kangaroos are there? <laughs> Apparently, forty-five million. Okay. So, so there are at most forty-five million boxing kangaroos. <laughs> That's okay. math. That's math right there. <laughs> and then, and then the first website link is titled "The Prolific and Upsetting History of Humans Boxing Kangaroos." <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> It's a Vice article. Of course it is. <laughs> oh, my God. This is great. So, oh, my God. There's black and white pictures of people boxing kangaroos. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Justin, you, you have hit a gold mine here with this to the restaurant. This is perfect. <laughs> Holy. I didn't realize we were just – this is the natural progression of history. <laughs> Vice is going to think we're heathens. Oh my god! This this article. I'm gonna have to save this article. I have to read this later. There's I've, I'm skimming through it, and there's <laughs> send that over. Send yes, that definitely. There's a line <laughs> in it that says, "I got Disney jumped into the fictional boxing kangaroo game with three silly symphonies that involve the creatures in some way. The most famous of the bunch being Mickey's Kangaroo from 1935. The Fighting <laughs> Roo has been an animated classic ever since, appearing everywhere from Looney Tunes and the Flintstones to The Simpsons and Futurama to Sailor oh Moon and Naruto. Wait, did you say Wait, did you say Sailor Moon? <laughs> yeah, it says it says Sailor Moon and Naruto. It doesn't give like episode uh note uh I, it doesn't show where, but it's, it's it references Disney, Looney Tunes, Flintstones, Matt Grenning cartoons and then anime. <laughs> That's amazing. Naruto? Yeah, apparently. I oh don't... my god, that picture. That <laughs> no, picture on that open, article. Holy shit. <laughs> Yo, these guys are kind of jacked boxing these kangaroos. There's a video. Oh, yeah. Yeah, dude, this is this is a gold mine. This is, this is going to take a while to implement at the restaurant because apparently we have to corral boxing kangaroos. But this is, this is going to be the, the hottest, hottest attraction at the restaurant. I can see it now. The guy's giving a speech before he boxes the kangaroo, dude. <laughs> I haven't even watched the video yet. I gotta read Bro, this whole article. This can—they're all laughing. The kangaroo is not interested in boxing this guy. <laughs> oh no, is he gonna punch it in the face? Bro, the kangaroo's so awkward. Welcome to Kangaroo Amodities. <laughs> Wait, is this real life? I don't know. It could be a scene from a movie in the and if there's a video. Maybe. But, the, I mean, they still had to get the kangaroo to stand up and, like, look like a boxer. So it can yeah. be done. <laughs> oh, shit. The kangaroo took the first punch. He's not really <laughs> wailing at it. They're making it. The kangaroo's throwing throwing jabs at him. Oh, my God. He's got to be the chokehold. I feel like he could just knock out this kangaroo right now, but he doesn't want to. He's just dancing around it. He's not, like, going hard. 
at the bottom of that. Okay, I'm going to put this article in the show notes so everybody can check it out because this has become such a great tangent. But one of the at the bottom, there's a related link to an article called Jack Slack colon Street Fighting Ruse. Oh, and there's a picture of a of a kangaroo that looks like it's ready to square up, and it's just testicles are straight hanging out like it is a ridiculous picture to use like it's good for the boxing but it is graphic like it is animal planet graphic bro do you have like album covers to your podcast episodes (laughs) yeah we usually put yeah we have a we have a cinemodities logo and we put the poster of the movie in there i know where you're going with this justin maybe maybe if there's like a patreon exclusive more we talk more about mulholland driver kangaroos it'll be the little vhs cover we use and that fucking nasty picture of a kangaroo oh my god you can just do like extras you know mulholland drive extras (laughs) put that on it oh my god Jeez. Okay, okay. Yeah, everybody check out this article and come to the restaurant. I'll keep everyone updated when we get uh, when we get it set up because we're going to have the opportunity for you to box kangaroos and if you <laughs> knock them out, you get to eat them. Perfect. Justin, you, you hit a, a fucking grand slam with that one. You I got guys, you. You could be done with snacks for like uh, two months. That one was so good. But I do have to ask <laughs> if you have any others. <laughs> I don't. That and the espresso, man. Okay. That's it. You you knew. You knew that you couldn't top that. <laughs> no, no. Oh, that's no amazing. Shot. That's amazing. Okay, that, that was great. Well, with that being said, uh, we have, of course, finished Chewed Up and Spit Out. It was a long one, five Mondays. Next month in July, we are uh, hitting four Mondays, of course, and we are doing something very different. So don't expect any of these deep analyses of puzzly movies and mystery movies like Under the Silver Lake and Mulholland Drive. Don't expect any uh, hardcore feminist issue discussions like in uh, Black Swan Showgirls and Neon Demon. Instead, we are doing none other than a series devoted to another director, Second time we're doing a director series. Uh, the first was Paul Bartel, and the next one we're going to is none other than Danny DeVito, because it seems like everybody forgets or doesn't remember that he directs movies, or used to at least. I think the last one was in 2006. So I'm excited. Uh, of course, I love when we start new series. I think we're going to get some really great movies, and I don't think it's a spoiler alert, because the most famous movie Danny DeVito has ever directed is, of course, Matilda, and that, I believe, is when we are going to hear from Justin next. Is that correct? Woo! Yeah, yeah. And and once again, we will have a musical tie-in, just like we had Kanye here. We will have Alt-J from Matilda. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so we'll get some more freestyling in. It'll be great. Uh, but check it out. We will, we're going to run through four of Danny DeVito's seven movies. I'm going to do the same thing that I did for Paul Bartel. I will watch all seven movies, and... Uh, give a ranking of them because i like to do that when we go to directors but i know i already love matilda now and i can't wait to get to that because that's a fucking crazy movie from what i remember i haven't seen it in like 15 years i think but it's insane from what i remember for sure all right well justin forward to it yeah oh absolutely danny devito who doesn't love danny devito um so with that being said justin thank you for being here thank you for going through um I, oh, I don't, I don't know if we remember to say it at the beginning, uh, but thank you for letting your brain be chewed up and spit out by this movie. Yes. I'm glad you found it intriguing and we got this conversation from it. But is there anything that you'd like to pitch or any final words you'd like to say about uh, Mulholland Drive, chewed up, spit out, anything at all? Well, you said it. 
I texted it to you. This was the perfect ending to chew up and spit out because at the end, and I literally said to you, my poor fucking mind has been chewed up and spit out. Love it. That is what David Lynch does to you in this movie. And he's he's a true artist for being able to do it. It was a great intro to his stuff. I don't know if anything can top it, but when I'm mentally and emotionally ready, I'll maybe check out something else he did or just rewatch this movie. I don't have anything to plug, anything else to say other than, hey, it's been a hell of a ride. Right Thank on. you, cowboy. Yeah, I will uh, I'll put your um, chess.com name in the show notes again. Sure. Uh, hopefully someone will hit you up on there. <laughs> oh, there was no chess in this movie. Oh, that's that's right. This is the first time you don't have chess in a movie. Um, Damn. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I don't know about Matilda. If that has, I don't remember if that has any chess. That might have like a chess board at some point. But I'm gonna make this up to Justin one day. There's a movie that I've wanted to talk about on this podcast for ever since its inception, way back at the beginning. And it like chess is a major plot point to that movie. Like multiple chess games mean many things in the movie. So I'll have Justin oh. on here one day, and uh, it'll be great. Revolver. Oh, I don't know this one. Love that movie. It's directed by uh, Guy Ritchie, and uh, Justin and oh, I okay. saw um, The Gentleman together in theaters when theaters were still a thing. <laughs> that was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, so I will make it up to you, Justin. We will do a chess-heavy movie one day. I, I promise okay. you. <laughs> I've kind of moved on to Call of Duty anyway in okay, the past gonna, couple weeks. We're not going to do that. We're not going to. I'll be gone. Maybe you talk to, I don't know, you talk to Zach and see if he wants to do a Call of Duty movie. <laughs> I don't know if there are any. There's like that gamer movie, like the video, or, you know, the one where the kid's like in a video game or some shit. Oh, yeah, I know. I think it is called Gamer, yeah. Game, yeah. But I don't really want to do that one. <laughs> but, I'll, you know, I'll group up with any of your any of your viewers, if our viewers, if they want to play Call of Duty. I'm pretty bad at that, too, so... <laughs> All I don't right. know my tag on there. Oh, okay. You can tell me. I can put in the show notes if you want people to find you. Um, I'll just put your address in the show notes. It'll be fine. I'll put a Google yeah. Google Maps satellite shot of your house. It'll be fine. There you go. Put <laughs> give my phone number. <laughs> oh yeah, it'll go. It'll go on, all on there. You know, nothing bad <laughs> ever came from that. <laughs> For sure. All right. Well, then to finish out this episode and this series, we always have to say, well, how are we going to end this episode? What music are we going to play in reverse? And of course, I think. That we should have the upbeat, the great opening jitterbug music from this film. Throw it out in reverse. I think it's going to sound insane, and that'll play us out. What do you think? Let's do it. All right. Until next month, everybody. Uh, unless we get canceled after the, the, the chewed up and spit out series. We'll see how that goes. <laughs>